Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word blogspot.com and procure a copy of that book and my other works at the farm's official store which is at the farm podcast that is the farm podcast all one word that store and please consider signing up for the farm's patron you get two additional full-length shows per month that's between three and four hours bonus material with exclusive gifts and content okay guys i have got a heavy heavyweight pair of guests for me for today's show both of them repeaters our first guest has been a writer for Project Censored, Daily Censored, and Truthout, among others. He is he has received the Project Censored Most Censored News Stories for both 2009 and 2010 for his article, Neoliberalism, Charter Schools, and the Chicago Model Slash Obama and Duncan's Education Policy, Like Bush's Only Worse. This is published in Counterpunch, August 24th, 2009. He has also published more than seven books on education over the past 20 years, including the Charter School Movement, History, Politics, Policies, Economics, and Effectiveness. He has decades of activism stretching back to the anti-war movement of the 1960s. He moved to Nicaragua during the 1980s to support the Sandistas and fought against charter schools towards the end of the century and beyond in the States. And finally, he has been investigating parapolitics for nearly 50 years. Folks, I give you guys the legend, Dr. Danny Weil. Danny, thank you so much for dropping by again today, sir. Oh my goodness, thank you for having me. Such a long introduction. All right, well, well, you have earned it, sir. All right, also joining us today is another repeater. He is the founder of the Coalition Against Voter Disenfranchisement and Election Fraud. He is also the curator of the excellent website cavdev.org and is presently investigating the mysteries surrounding Ted Bundy, Waco, and the death of Jambini Ramsey. He is George of CavDev. George, thank you so much for dropping by again today, sir. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you, sir. And it is always a pleasure to have you here as well. All right. As you guys may have guessed with Janet, Danny joining me today, this is going to be a continuation of our international fascism series. For this outing, we're putting a special emphasis on Latin America. We're going to take a look at the bizarre netherworld of cults, drug cartels, death squads, and pedophiles that have been used to terrorize the Americas and pave the way for a fascist resurgence all across the hemisphere. Specifically, we're going to put a special emphasis on the fascist links to drug trafficking and the cartels of the America. These organizations have been used to carry out the dirty wars throughout the Americas in the aftermath of the Cold War. And at the heart of these networks, frequently there is evidence of strange cult activity, be it fundamentalist Mormonism, Santeria, or even more conventional occult orders. Also on tap is a brief overview of Les Sarkal, the stay-behind networks of Europe and the strategy of tension. All of these things are closely related to what unfolded in the Americas during the Cold War and beyond. So too are a series of isolated colonies and ranches that stretch across the Americas. Some of them 
La Colonia Dignidad, or the Ranch of Matamoros, you may have heard of. Others, La Colonia La Baron, maybe not so much. But a lot of interesting stuff happens at these places, that is for sure. So let's start exploring some of that. All right, to start off with, I wanted to talk a bit about Argentina. We talked a bit about the Nazi capital flight and the rat lines and prior installments. In the immediate aftermath of World War II, Argentina was ground zero for the preservation of the Nazi movement. To understand why this would be so, we need to explore the man then ruling Argentina, Juan Perón. So Danny, what can you tell us about this gentleman? Okay. Um, first of all, let's talk about populism. As you would ask me a question about populism uh, as a concept, I, and, and, and we were to relate that to uh, perhaps Huey Long, et cetera, et cetera. Populism was used to, used to be used as a term uh, to refer to a both left and right populism. In fact, we had popular fronts in the 1930s in the United States. But populism as a, as a word now has changed and it's usually used when attempting to describe fascist, fascist movements in both Latin America, US and Europe. And it's really not much used. Uh, it's something that is used in place of fascism. Uh, primarily due to the fact that the liberal mainstream's aversion to using neo-fascist or fascist designations arise from their lack of critique of capitalism. And so they can't really use words like that. And so in, in, in many ways, they've, they've replaced the word fascism with or, or, or alt-right. Uh, I mean, so many words are made up by the, by the media itself. So populism is a, is a term is somewhat vacuous. And I prefer to speak about, about fascism as it exists. As Bertrand Brecht asked in 1935, how can anyone tell the truth about fascism unless he's willing to speak out against capitalism, which brings it forth? So there's this notion of right-wing populism is employed in, in you know, it's kind of like a negative epithet, but it offers a cloak. So it really kind of like hides behind what's, you know, kind of really, really going on. Um, we had a terrible situation in Argentina. And in, 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 actually, I'm trying to get to the best point I can get to, to to begin to speak about some of this and what I have here about Perón. Um, Perón became a dictator in Argentina in 1946 after having uh, moved against the G with the GRU of Argentina, which was connected to fascist elements with Hitler uh, into overthrowing the uh, uh, regime that had, uh, existed in Argentina. And he rose to power in 1946, proclaiming himself the dictator of Argentina. And uh, everything was supposed to be uh, for the people, uh, just as we had spoken about when we spoke about uh, all that was uh, promised by Hitler and Mussolini for the people, when in all actuality, everything was supposed to be for the industrialists. So uh, Perón, for example, offered uh, full employment, he would offer uh, a number of social programs. How was he going to pay for them? Well, uh, basically he was going to pay for them uh, by taxing uh, corporations, very much like Roosevelt paper and New Deal program, for example. 
by taxing corporations, but then in turn, he was going to allow the corporations to actually run the government. And this is really what, what happened. Um, uh, Perón was a, uh, basically a pawn uh, in, in a world capitalist uh, system that was looking for uh, uh, refugees uh, to be able to move from Nazi Germany into uh, Argentina with the direct uh, uh, goal and purpose, uh, the, the Nazis had thought as well, was to turn the southern cone of Latin America into what would be the Fourth Reich. And that southern cone in included Chile, Uruguay, Paraguay, Bolivia, Peru, Argentina, uh, and uh, uh, I think I mentioned Uruguay, and Brazil. And uh, uh, this was the express uh, use to be made, made use of Peron to be able to put into context this type of um, uh, basically rat line situation. Uh, but it was also to smuggle money over into Argentina. So his wife was quite popular, for example, and born and sent about $100 million uh, over to uh, his wife uh, using Borman agents uh, after the war, around 47. And the wife uh, deposited the money in her account, and the money was uh, uh, later redeposited in other accounts, and it went to various shell companies. Um, Peron himself, um, as a character, was uh, somewhat into the occult. Uh, what occult specifically, I, I'm not exactly sure. Both he and his wife were into some kind of occult. And Peron was really, uh, 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 as I said, used to accomplish the rat line and the, uh, the movement of Nazi gold, uh, which was moved by submarine uh, consistently. Uh, to uh, Argentina to be hidden and, and put away. Now, uh, in, in the, there is an interesting notion, and that is the whole uh, notion of Avita uh, 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 Peron herself. Avita uh, Peron actually helped launch the post-fascist Fourth Reich. And how did she do it? She did it by uh, 1947. She was sent. Uh, to do a, a world tour. And um, under that world tour, uh, she was to meet with queens uh, and the kings of uh, uh, various countries. She deposited $800 million in Swiss banks. She was followed uh, consistently wherever she went uh, by the United States. I mean, they knew what she was up to. She went to France and, and met with fascists in Franco in France. She, met, she went to Germany. Uh, she went to Italy, which was a big place to go at the time. So she had a, a, a very, very uh, large effect um, uh, uh, in moving Nazi money inside. Now, you can jump forward, of course, and, 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 be, and get straight up into Argentina as it started to, to exist with narco-terrorism. Or we could continue to go down the line because uh, Perón was eventually thrown out of power, and then he eventually was retook power in 1973, and he was brought back from from uh, exile in Spain, where he went to. Uh, Spain was another free uh, zone for, for fascists, so Scorzani operated Paladin out of, uh, for example, um, uh, downtown Madrid. Uh, there's no problem. Uh, 
for the state, the Gladio State Behind program, or or to court uh, Perón. Uh, it was interesting that insofar as Scorsese did travel to Argentina and did bed uh, Perón's wife Evita uh, after he heard that there was a great deal of Mormon money that had to be moved to two accounts uh, that uh, Mormon had set up, and uh, that's eventually what was done. And they were uh, there was a lot of money that was moving to the Vatican, a lot of money that was moving to Switzerland, uh, and that ended up in Argentina. And that money was uh, there and thereafter set up. Uh, to set up a number of things, and one of them was the AAA, or the, the, uh, the Latin America Alliance, which was the Desquad Alliance. And that, that happened in 1976, because Perón came back in 1973 to run the government uh, once again. The people loved him. They elected him four times. Uh, they, uh, I mean, uh, despite his rhetoric, despite his Nazism, despite his entire sanctuary for, for, for uh, 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 Hitler uh, refugees and uh, Fourth Reich uh, Fifth Columners. Uh, he was loved by everybody um, because in, in, in comparison to what they had. And so he, he was brought back in 73, lasted two years. In 76, one of his aides, Lopez Rega, took over the, the death squads. And uh, what began then began uh, 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 basically death squads or the beginning, the beginning of Operation Condor. Well, hold on a second, Danny, before, uh, let's pause on that before, you know, because we'll get to the Condor stuff for a, a little bit here. And there's a lot more background to that I wanted to go over first. Um, if I can interject, though, one thing, too, that um, I think is interesting to kind of point out with this, um, in the countries in South America and the Southern Cone, where, um, you know, there really was fascist resurgence, and it took hold quite effectively there. You know, there's been a lot of attempts to try to explain that or why, you know, fascism was uh, it was more popular in certain regions of the world than others. Um, and there are some elements to that. I mean, obviously, there was a fairly large uh, contingent of German and uh, Italian immigrants, for instance, in the Southern Cone. Um, all of these countries were heavily Catholic, which was also a factor. Uh, but another factor that I don't think gets talked about a lot when you look at countries where fascism has taken hold is that um, they often have a, uh, a very conservative uh, officer's corps in the military and typically a professional military as well. Uh, this was very much the case of a lot of these regions in the Southern Cone. Many of them were organized along the lines of, uh, you know, the French military and some of the other uh, old European ones. There was that similar kind of tradition that prevailed in the officers' corps. And I think that a lot of times that is a crucial component for a successful fascist revolution is having, on the one hand, a, uh, a professional military, and then on the other hand, having one that does have this sort of conservative officer's corps that can support a fascist movement from within the armed forces. Uh, so anyway, that's kind of interesting. Well, I, I would agree with you, but, but then it, but again, one has to also have in place a civilian governor, governorship or, or a military dictatorship would be even far better, and which is what Argentina did. In order to have exactly what you talked about, okay, which which which, which occurred in Argentina, they launched a full-scale dirty war with thousands of Argentinians disappearing on the streets into secret concentration camps where they faced torture and death. 
Now, that was done after a coup d'etat by the generals, and they established a military dictatorship. So they were able to get away with that. But there's all, they also were able to get away with it in so many civilian governments, because the civilian governments just acted as a front or did nothing to stop them. But Argentina's dirty war took place in the, in the military, military dictatorship in the middle. Well, absolutely. Well, I mean, again, I mean, you know, a lot of times it's about bringing about a military dictatorship, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Um, but how about Huey Long? I mean, that was like another very interesting comparison, I think, uh, that's been made with Perón. Uh, do you want to like touch on that briefly here, Danny? Let's, let's start it this way. Huey Long in probably embodied or an alternative of hundreds of thousands of Louise and voters. He was elected in 1924 as governor. He went on to he would, have been, he would have been president in 1940 had he not been assassinated. Um, he declared, he came over the program declaring every man a king. And he promised a government that would break up large bank accounts, provide a base, base level income to every citizen. So kind of like, uh, and he was a terrible critic of Roosevelt. So he positioned himself left of Roosevelt uh, and he set up for Louisiana, he was basically talking to small farmers and itinerant laborers. Okay, and he was making an inspiring promise to them. But if you go back and you look at February 1935, and you take a look at the Socialist Appeal, which is a very widely read newspaper at the time, and there's an article that's been written here called Human Law of the Working Class Movement. Again, this goes back to 35. Now, the law was promising the sky. Okay. Um, but he was doing this at a time of failing export trade in cotton, tobacco, sugar. All this was affecting the South. And this is the background for the present day politics of the South. So the, the capitalism is falling apart and it's affecting the Southern the products that are going to the South and the North. So, of course, there's an uprising that's going on against amongst the bourgeoisie of the South. And there's a great unrest has gripped the masses and state after state, and these respectable lackeys of landlords of the Democratic Party are being swept out of power by these factions with the party basing themselves on what populism you can want to call it, or discontent. All right. But uh, they have an antebellum aristocracy that's broken up the Civil War. And it's got to be, be, be replaced. And Long is one of those people. So what has Long has done? He's a, he's a product of four white farmers in northern Louisiana where he's born. He's got a clever mind. He's ambitious. He works jobs. He moves to Oklahoma. He goes back to Wynn Parish and begins to practice law after getting a law license. He enters politics. And um, he begins taking up the fight while holding office after being elected to the uh, Louisiana Service Commission, he begins to take up the fight in the 1920s for the common carriers of small oil producers over the large oil companies. Now, for your, your listeners, let me break this down. Uh, you have a, a common carriers for small oil producers who have come together as a group and they want to carry oil to the different uh, sectors of the country. Uh, and the large oil companies are their opposition. They want to put them out of business because they don't need them anymore. So, but they, at that point in time, he's defending the, the call or common carriers, 
which would later be the common man. Okay. So we see the nature of his politics. He's not against capitalism. He's not going after large oil companies. Okay. He's against big capitalist corporation when he says in favor of small capitalism. And that's important for today because it's the exact message Trump is, is trying to put forward. Even though he's given a one point, he gave a one point seven trillion dollar tax benefit that worked its way upwards. Okay, he was basically saying, "I'm on your side. I'm fighting for you. We're going after the big corporations for the small guy." And instead of going after the system, of course, he goes eventually aligns with, with, with the large capitalists. This is a, it's a middle class movement under law. It's not a working class movement. It's a middle class movement. So uh, actually, forgive me, I'm in, he's not successful in for governor 24. But then he is, gets into office a little bit later, and he has uh, two purposes that he, he puts forward to get him in office for governor. He wants money for contractors to strengthen his support from labor through jobs. And he wants to build a political machine. So he begins to give free books, school, school books to kids. A new capital is furnished uh, give the, the masses a feeling that he's doing things. Uh, but this money is all going to corporations. It's not going to the little people in Louisiana. So how is he financed? Basically by an occupational tax, which means that you, there is a tax on corporations or an increased franchise tax on corporations through an occupational tax or franchise tax. So he is he's basically doing what Roosevelt's doing, but not to the extent, all right? So that's his populist attack on Wall Street for his middle-class reformism. But all this is for making sure that he gets complete power in the state. So at the time he's doing this in Louisiana, there's 4,000 members in all the unions. And what does Wong do? He vetoes or he vetoed every labor reform the unions put forth. They put forth the ratification of child labor amendment. He vetoed it. Union labor on all state work, vetoed. Old age pensions, vetoed. Factory inspection, too chaotic, too politicized, vetoed. Accident healthcare laws, well, got to get rid of them. Too tough, vetoed. All unenforced. Meanwhile, the third of Louisiana's population, which is black, and okay, and white people are on the relief rolls, and he's vetoing labor policy and calling himself a populist. And this is very important to keep in mind because if we don't even critically examine what these people do, as opposed to what they say that they want to do, we'll get sucked in by the rhetoric, and they will indeed be a, a victim of populism. I'm, I'm, so finishing up a little bit, we're long, and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop. Long's basically put Louisiana as the second largest in the United States at the time of his governorship. He's put it into the largest per capita state debt in the country. Uh, the state debt's increased from 11, from 150 million to 11 billion under law. Why is the debt increased? Because he won't tax the corporations. He keeps borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. That's how he's funding his populism. And since the majority of the workers in Louisiana are Negro, or at the time they were called, or white, 
but this was when this was written. They own no property. Um, he gives them a 2000 exemption on all property, but they don't own any property. So who does that end up helping? The middle class and the large real estate owners. And he, this is exactly what Trump did. Many of the wealthiest men in the state are the most ardent and loyal supporters of law. Sorry. He's used every trick known to capitalist politics to dominate the state from bribery and intimidation to fraudulent control of elections. Civil liberties mean nothing to him. Okay? Now, what, what Long did in closing is he started what was called the Share Our Wealth Movement. And he becomes a national figure. And by starting this movement, which is basically a rhetoric movement, he becomes a national figure. And he basically becomes a threat to real working class movements in the country. And this is in the 1930s. As a, all of the attacks he starts making on the Roosevelt administration are calculated to capture disillusionment with the masses with the failure of a great deal of Roosevelt's reforms. And we can see this today. Biden's no Roosevelt, believe you me. But we can see basically a lot of this going on today, right? Uh, it's failing. So they're in a Weimar moment, moment at this time. Roosevelt's not getting his programs through, but Long is going against him. So he sets up this program, Share Our Wealth. And the Share Our Wealth gives everything some malcontent. So he's going to limit poverty so everyone can have not less than $5,000. It can be not less than $5,000 free of debt. How is he going to do it? Doesn't say. He said he'll limit fortunes to a few million dollars and he'll allow the balance of the American people to share in the wealth of the land, which means nothing. To the agent, he's going to give them $30 a month. To persons over 60 who don't earn as much as $1,000 a year, he's going to, uh, uh, excuse me, people over 60, he's going to give them $1,000 a year. And, or allow them to possess that much amount of property, which they're prohibited to possess. For the industrial worker, limit the work hours, but he's not here just to say what he's going to do about how he's going to limit the work hours. For the farmers and the religious, he's going to balance agricultural production. These are his words. He's going to balance agricultural production which what can be sold and consumed according to the laws of God, which never fail. In other words, nothing. In platform six, I'll care for our veterans after our wars. Well, that's an old fashioned stunt on the power of the word of power, right? Platform seven, tax, taxation to run the government is gonna be supported first by reducing big fortunes from the top. How, we don't know thereby to improve the country and provide employment to public works. He's thinking about the unemployed farmer and he's looking for their vote. Okay. Well, this is a leading socialist party at the time that says, we better not fall for this. If we fall for this, we're gonna get a wrong or we're gonna get a Coughlin in power. If we don't build up a national sharecroppers, farmers and actions union based on socialist principles and action, we're going to be caught in the fascist nets, just as in Germany. We're going to get long. And indeed, they did get long. And, um, and long went on to 1940, uh, when he was very mysteriously murdered. 
by uh, a man by the name of Weiss. Uh, listeners can go online and look up the murder of Huey Long. There is an article on the step on the, on the uh, grandson, excuse me, of the uh, alleged assassin. Uh, uh, that's very interesting because it is oral history and it's available to be heard and listened to. But uh, Huey Long, probably with his red Eric and with uh, what he was doing, uh, would have been the favored uh, calculus uh, for the wealthy industrialist class uh, over their eventual support of caving into the Roosevelt administration. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating, and also the um, well, I'll get into the connection here with the assassination in a little bit, but um. Uh, do you want to briefly touch on um, the similarities between Perón and Long uh, to put some perspective in this for the listeners? Well, the, the, the similarities are the following. It's that they, they were both middle-class movements. And this is true of the Trump movement as well. Again, I mentioned this is the first Yes, part yes, of that's a very crucial point. Populism crucial is almost point. always a middle-class and not a working-class movement. It is very much so. So Trump got 30% of his movement, maybe 85 grand or more. Uh, of his base made 85 grand or more. I mean, you know, they do come from the working class, but they are, they're not, and they're not, you know, the, the, the poor people standing in line at the Great Depression picture that we see. That's, that's not where the base comes from. It's a, it's a middle class movement and it's got to be subsidized. And so it's subsidized by, you know, they go around with a hat and they, they start organizations, front organizations, America First, or, or as I, I mentioned, and they go around with a hat to the leading, leading industrialists of the time. That's what we're speaking now during the 1940s, 1930s. And they start asking for money. And they say, look, fund us. Uh, you know, this is what's going on in the world today. You have a, a, a growing socialist movement at the bottom. Tremendous, this, and this is what's salient today. Tremendous resistance at the bottom amongst working class people. We're not getting a fair shake. Working class people. People at Amazon who are working 40 hours a week. I'm talking working class people, not people that are, that are unemployed or homeless, but working class people. They're not getting a fair shake. You know, they, and, we, and, they're, and they're starting to organize and they're starting to organize unions. And they're going to want, they're going to want a larger wage. Are they going to want more control over, over, over the say at the, at, at the work at factory? Right? You're going to want more control over the time, the motions, the studies, everything that we've been able to privatize and put in motion, we're going to have to put under a union contract, and we don't want that. And so basically, uh, you don't want it either because your stocks are invested in all this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, 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 it's going to increase. It, this is what we see today. It's going to increase inflation. You raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, it's going to mean you're going to have to raise the cost of your products. And this is what Americans are made to believe. Now they're made to believe it. They weren't in those days in the 40s. In the 40s, when we were talking, you could not convince a worker that, 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 that asking for a rise in the minimum wage, okay, was going to have anything to do with inflation in the United States. It was just an impossible argument to make. It was, it's, it's an insidious argument that's been basically is really part of the whole economy of capitalism. Of course, the price of products will go up if the price of labor will go up because all they'll do is they'll pass the cost down to the consumer. Of course, we know that. That's why the system itself must come under attack. But when you have the Huey Longs and you have the Perones, what you've got is you've got people that pose, they're posers, 
they pose as populists. They pose as the working man savior, the, the, the one coming in with, you know, they're going to rescue them from the evil of, of corporations in, the, in today's age, it's the tech corporations, or horrible Facebooks, or, or, or the incredible financial of, of, of market that's, that's, that's putting everybody, is killing everybody on the planet. Uh, uh, and, and the prones actually serve a very, very strong purpose. And they, they tend to divide the working class. That's really their purpose. And that's really what Perone, Huey did, excuse me, Huey Long did in Louisiana and why the Socialist Workers Party was so against him because he's basically organizing middle-class people using working-class rhetoric. And Perone in, 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 in Argentina not only did that, but he did worse. He completely paved the road with diamonds, okay, to accept all of the fascists that were sent either from the Vatican or came by submarine, um, of which many think that Hitler came as well, not just Mueller, not just uh, 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 Mengele, not just all those people, but thousands and thousands moved to Argentina. I mean, it was set up beforehand. Uh, the relationship between Argentina and Germany before uh, World War II was immense uh, in terms of trade, in terms of uh, uh, commerce. And so it was uh, uh, basically uh, Argentina was the Europe of, of, of Latin America. And but with the huge influence of, of German, uh, it, was not, it was not hard to, to, to bring Germans into the country. And so Perón served as a mastermind of that when he was no longer useful. Uh, and then, of course, his wife, as I said, launched the Rainbow Tour in 1947, going to Greece, going to all the fascist countries, all the countries that had lost World War II, in the Balkans especially, going to all of them, depositing money in Switzerland. Okay, All this is known to the intelligence agency. All this is declassified information. It can be found in incredible books. Before we can really start exploring the activities that ravaged the America during the Cold War, oh, there's death squads and so forth that Danny was alluding to, we really need to get into the history of the broader stay behind networks. So that requires a bit of a word about Le Cercao as well. Okay, so Le Cercao was founded in uh, the period of around 1952-1953, and it began as an outgrowth of the Bilderberg Group. Yeah, the Bilderberg Group. You heard that right. Eventually, it would break with Bilderberg and become its right-wing opposition. But in the early years, Le Cercao was much more Catholic and continentally Europe-oriented than the Anglo-American, Dutch, Protestant-centric Bilderberg Group. Now, many of the early members of Le Cercao were also drawn from the ranks of Opus Dei, and or the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, more commonly known as the Knights of Malta. Uh, also interesting, uh, Alan Dulles and uh, James Hazos Angleton were also, Angleton was definitely a part of the Knights of Malta. Dulles probably was as well, as were many other CIA directors, but that's another topic. Anyway, this changed uh, as far as the Sercal goes dramatically during the 1970s. It's around this point that a group of British Tories led by Julian Amory, uh, Amory's father, by the way, Leopold uh, Amory, was a big Zionist and uh, might have actually been one of the authors of the Balfour Declaration. So that's also an interesting note. Julian, Lord Julian, had absolutely impeccable contacts in Israel. 
So anyway, these guys moved into Le Cercle and uh, they really tilted things towards a uh, British angle and specifically also Euroscepticism. Whereas Le Cercle had once been at the forefront of European integration, it really rebranded itself as the bastion of Euroscepticism during the late 90s. Uh, so yeah. You know, when you look at something like Brexit, uh, you know, this is really very much a legacy of a lot of the British members of the Cercal uh, or people affiliated with them, such as Sir uh, James Goldsmith, another really fascinating character. Okay, so the official reason given for the establishment of the Cercal was Franco-German reproachment in the aftermath of the Second World War. Yeah. And of course, they had the earlier First World War as well, and, you know, the general animosity for quite a considerable amount of time. So they had a lot of issues to work out. But in this case, it's probably nonsense. There are a lot of other bodies uh, trying to get the, Frank, the French and the Germans to hold hands uh, without needing Le Cercal at this point in time. Further, the founding members give a clear indication of Le Cercal's actual purpose. They were Conrad Adenauer and, and friends Joseph Strauss of Germany, Anton Pinet and Jean Vallant of France, and Giulio Andradia of Italy. Now, Adenauer and Andradia would serve as prime ministers of their respective countries, while Pinet was the president of France for a time. I think this was during the Third Republic, but don't quote me on that. Franz Joseph Strauss also held many crucial posts in Germany during his long and storied political career. So as far as the German and Italian partners are concerned, all of these men oversaw stay-behind networks in their respective countries. Andradia oversaw what was known as Anello or the Ring in Italy, a stay-behind that traces all the way back to Mussolini. Andradia was given control of this network by at least the late 1970s, but he almost surely had access sooner. Elsewhere, both Adenawa and Franz Joseph Strauss both had access to stay-behinds in Germany as well. Now, as for the French partners, their ties to the stay-behinds are not so obvious. In fact, I found nothing conclusive linking Pinet to them. As for Jean Violence, we are on much firmer footing. Violet appears to have been a member of Le Cagoule during uh, the period leading up to the Second World War. Now, Le Cagoule was a pre-World War II secret society that attempted to destabilize the French government via campaign of terrorism. During World War II, they gained tremendous power by playing both the Axis and the Allies against one another within the French state. Now, the great Richard B. Spence and I did an epic show on Le Cagoul, which is available in the farm subscribers section. I urge you guys to check that out. It's really, uh, it gives a lot of valuable information on the backdrop to all of this. Now, another thing I want to point out about the Cagoul during the uh, Second World War uh, they uh, were implicated in uh, the assassination of the uh, French Admiral Darlin. Uh, this was, in a way, uh, a kind of proto-version of the Kennedy assassination, and uh, incidentally, quite a few of the figures involved in the Kennedy assassination later show up, uh, who were involved in the Kennedy assassination also show up in the earlier Darlin incident. And possibly this also traces back to the Huey Long thing as well. 
Uh, you know, I don't really want to delve too deeply into all of this, but if you guys are interested, that's a line of research that a lot of people have speculated on for some time. And it is fascinating to track these uh, chain of progressions of various political assassinations. Okay. Are you speaking of La Cagoule? Mm -hmm. Yes, Le Cagoule. Okay, well, I don't know if you know this, that La Cagoule is part of Mexico's synarchism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the whole synarchies thing as well. Um, that was, yeah, another thing that Spence and I uh, got into con into a conversation about. But the uh, we also addressed this too in the Waco episode on Los Tecos. But uh, the connections between Mexican synarchy and French synarchy, uh, it's speculative. A lot of it was actually pushed by the La Roche organization, which is you know not. Uh, they definitely have a certain agenda. Uh, there probably was some, you know, overlap with the French and the Mexican one, but the Mexican one also sort of had its own uh, uh, special purposes as well. But again, you know, that was something we already got into a lot in the Waggle Show. I don't want to digress too much into that. I okay, so the old Kagul network was put to use as a stay behind by the Allies in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. They worked directly with Odo Scorzini and were based out of Spain. This particular network has been extensively detailed by Ralph Gannis in the Scorzini Papers and Hank Alvarelia in the Great Aku in Dallas. Violet, as an ex-Cogliard, was surely aware of this uh, stay-behind network at a minimum. Uh, I really would urge you guys to check out both of those books. They go into a lot of the overlap as well with the assassination with Admiral Darlin and uh, the Kennedy assassination. And also it really kind of emphasizes as well what a hub that uh, Spain was, Franco Spain was for these kinds of activities. In the immediate post-war years, this was really where a lot of the training for the French state behinds was occurring at and so forth. So, <clears throat> and I think I think we must add that 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 much of this training was going on by Scorsini uh, himself. Uh, he was training uh, 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 many in the Middle East, uh, both the Egyptians. He was training the Palestinians. He was training the Libyans. Uh, some say he trained Carlos. Um, he trained a, a number of state behind units and a number of people that were in state behind units, and all based out of Spain. Spain was a, a nobody, nobody could touch it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the Cogliards and sort of this French component were a major uh, element of this as well. Um, of course, I mean, this is, you know, kind of in this period, I think it would have been slightly afterwards around the early 50s, a lot of the uh, the French military corps uh, developed the concept of Le Guerre Revolutionaire. Uh, which, you know, frankly, really is the actual basis for the strategy of tension and a lot of this other stuff. Um, I detailed that actually quite a bit in my book, Strange Tales of the Parapolitical. But uh, yeah, this, this abomination that Scorzini and a lot of these Cogliards were setting up uh, was just so crucial to a lot of this insanity. It cannot be emphasized enough. Okay, so it is thus my contention that the original purpose of Le Cal was to manage the European stay-behind networks. Now, as time went on, the group became more ambitious, but it maintained these various stay-behind networks until at least the end of the Cold War. Uh, that's if you believe they went away, which I really don't think so, but whatever. That's, you know, again, another topic. 
the Circal partners behind, uh, the, excuse me, the Circal partners from Belgium were heavily implicated in both the stay behinds in their country, as well as a wave of terror that ravaged it during the 1980s. Elsewhere, Le Circal maintained extensive ties to propaganda Dewey and Italy's years of lead as well. A lot more on this topic can be found in a series of blogs I wrote on my website a few years ago. They're called Secret Armies and the Origins of the Circal Complex. Again, that's viceofview.blogspot.com. Now, the important thing to take away from this is the extent to which, quote unquote, former Nazis and fascists were used to construct these stay behinds. At the forefront of these efforts were Scorzini, who also helped set up the German stay behinds and all the other ones Danny was just getting at. Okay. This is especially interesting in light of the fact that Scorzini was also collaborating with elements of the Soviet bloc for decades as well. I mean, you know, when you look at something, uh, like the uh, the war in Algeria that broke out in the late 50s, early 60s. I mean, he was literally, you know, working with both the, you know, the French side and uh, the Algerian, the FLN uh, faction. So he did that quite frequently, honestly. It's uh, one of the great peculiarities of Scarface. Another important point about these stay-behind networks that needs to be emphasized, besides terrorism, they were knee-deep in illicit activities. Odo Scorzini and his whole circle were massive in arms trafficking, for instance. Propaganda Dewey was implicated in drug trafficking by multiple sources. In a lot of ways, these stay-behinds operated light stakes, state-sanctioned organized crime syndicates. This is important to keep in mind as we shift gears to the Americas. As we shall see, drug trafficking is a major component of the Latin American stay-behinds as well. Okay, so it's fairly well known by now. Operation Condor was initiated by Pinochet's Chile and several other nations in the Southern Cone during the mid 1970s, as Danny was getting to earlier. So this is commonly likened uh, to South America's Gladio, which is the name that's usually given to the state behind, though that was only the name of the Italian component. Okay, so the comparisons between Condor and quote unquote Gladio, they're fairly fair if somewhat simplistic. Regardless, links between Condor and the Eritrean stay behind the Legion. Propaganda Dewey maintained links with Argentina's death squads, while Stefano della Chaie, an infamous Italian terrorist heavily involved in the years of lead, was directly employed by Pinochet's intelligence service for a time. All right, so Danny, give us a little bit more about the Argentinian death squads now. They're often referred to as the AAA. It was especially notorious. Uh, I, you know, I think it really needs to be emphasized how brutal this outfit was. Can you get into that, please? Yes. Um, yes, definitely. It was called the Dirty War. Um, uh, and it basically was uh, as a result of a, a fascist takeover by generals in a full-scale dirty war. Um, disappearing um, Argentinians off the streets in secret concentration camps where they face torture or death. <clears throat> Excuse me, now it's called the Triple A. So I'll refer to it from now on as the Triple A. It was basically made up of uh, uh, generals uh, that launched uh, the Dirty War. And it made uh, and, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, the disappeared were a trade unionists, a socialists, communists, uh, anybody that opposed uh, the oligarchs of, of, of Argentina. Um, it, it was, uh, uh, 
I'm trying to get to a, to a play where I can, I can see better my Um, the AAA or the AAA ended up um, um, a training of you know, the cultures, uh, as well as uh, other death squads throughout the entire uh, Latin American continent. Um, the AAA were most notorious for training the cultures. Uh, they also trained Guatemalan de of, of, of tortures and um, of fascist murders. They were fascist. Um, uh, they employed narco-trafficking uh, to subsidize themselves uh, in Latin America, narco-trafficking and arms deals and um, torture all put together. Um, they attempted uh, to, uh, uh, they actually found some Argentinian military advisors deployed to Chiapas in the 1990s. So we don't even know if they still exist. They may still exist, but in another format. Um, they're engaged, they were engaged in state terrorism through Latin America. Um, after the coup d'etat in, in 1976, they sent out advisors to Central American armies and extreme right organizations throughout Latin America. And they had a commander at the time by the name of Guillermo Suarez Amazon. And he promoted the creation of what's called Foreign Task Force Battalion 601. And that's a military that was a military intelligence apparatus linked the Secretary of State of Information of the government and military, but running parallel and outside. These military detachments uh, and Argentine agents were to have two simultaneous missions, right? to assist their Central American allies and to prosecute, not prosecute, to persecute uh, Argentinian exiles, especially Montenegro groups. Now, who are Montenegro groups? Well, at this time in history, um, there were a number of groups that were in Latin America that were still fighting for independence. So the Sandinistas, for example, did not make get their independence until 79. Uh, I'm talking here at around 1973, 1976, 73, 74. Um, so there were many groups that were still fighting in Latin America for freedom. And um, they, uh, the Tupamaros were one that were fighting in Uruguay. It's a film made about them called State of Siege. If you have not seen it by Costa Gavras, who did the film Missing, you should see it. It's uh, incredible about uh, Dan Mitrioni and the CIA and um, uh, how the Tupamaros kidnapped him and forced him to confess to the CIA crimes in Uruguay at the time. Um, so these the, the, uh, the military detachments and Argentine agents who are dead have these missions. Lot to kill Montenegro groups and to make sure to kill as many leftists as possible in the southern cone. That's why I'm saying that this AAA was attached to Nazis and the Fourth Reich. It couldn't have existed without it. It, could, it couldn't have happened without it. It's an influence, a tremendous Argentinian influence of German Nazi writers, and as we see, Lopez Vega, who becomes the head of the AAA uh, a, 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 or AAA himself is a Nazi and then a cultist, etc. So this is all happening in 73 after Perón, but in Argentina. According to some reports, uh, Argentine military intelligence and extreme right Central American groups are sharing contacts with a neo-fascist Italian, neo Italian organization. It's called Avanguardia Nacional. Now, this link dates back as far as 73, when this Italian 
terrorist who you already mentioned, Stefano Delicai, began operating in Argentina. He has ties with Chile and Dina, which is the police of Dina, the police under Pinochet's rule at the time. Okay, and it's directed by a guy by the name of Corno Manuel Contreras, who's later promoted to general. Well, Delice, who operates his activities, okay, with Chilean Asian, and he's working with Michael Townley. Now, Michael Townley is the convicted, later convicted in the assassination of Chile's ex-foreign minister, Orlando Letelier in Washington, and his aide, Ronnie Moffitt, that took place in, in Washington, D.C., in right in the square in Washington, D.C. So, uh, He's also, they're also training Dobisson uh, and all of, of his army officers in torture and how to eliminate leftists. And basically deploying a lot of Operation Phoenix techniques, um, a lot of techniques, hunt and kill techniques, um, uh, how to move a man, a man in less than teams of eight. Until about 1980, these Argentine advisors were deployed in El Salvador and Guatemala. In Guatemala, it went through the worst dictatorship under Rios Mall from 80 to 84. I mean, I lived, I, I went through it in 84. I, I went to, to Guatemala during the dictatorship. I, 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 I myself was not treated well there, but I'm compared to poor people. Um, Guatemala was a terrible dictatorship as well as El Salvador. So, uh, the Guatemalan people were fighting, but uh, they're mostly Mayans, and uh, they don't, the fight is not good. It's a different fight. So in Bolivia, uh, the AAA is responsible. And they're responsible for the cocaine coup, 1980, and we know who's involved in the cocaine coup. Okay, Klaus Barbie, the butcher from Lyon. Okay, again, the Nazis. Once again, every time you turn around, there's a connection to Nazis. Or Nazi front organizations, okay? Or Nazis who are dealing drugs, or ex-Nazis who are now like report. I'm just saying report. Who are now or not? And that we're now no longer ex-Nazis. Wars over, so now they're dealing drugs, and they happen to be in Latin America because they can live there, and nobody's going to bother them. You know, you know who's going to extradite you in 1947 from Latin America back to Germany? Because there's no Germany. There's nobody to extradite. And the Mossad's not looking for anybody. After they got, after they caught Eichmann and hung Eichmann, they said, that's the last time we're going to do this. We need Borman money. We can't, we can't, we can't alienate any more ex-Nazis. We need money. We can't alienate them. We have to work with them. And that's what Mossad did. And that's why the Mossad needed to, to turn agents like Angleton. They needed to turn agents like Dulles. Okay. Because there was a terrible war going on with Britain. Uh, a newly found state called Israel in 1948, and that war, without going into it, all right, was going on in post-World War II fascism, and it played a lot, it has a lot to do with the movements that were going on at the time, especially the Mosley movement, which was a fascist movement in England. All right, anyway, the Bolivia is now in 1980s, this is the genesis of the narco dictatorship. Argentine gives basically military personnel and 400 advisors. And they allowed the drug cartels, cartels to finance the group. So they all basically, like you said, Stephen, it's organized crime. And they're sitting around, instead of dividing up Cuba, they're going to divide up um, Latin America, the Southern Republic. And they start to divide it up and they start to um, uh, decide how much money is going to go from this cartel, from this, this group, and how much other groups going to operate, who's going to be killed next, who's going to be not killed next. Um, 
they run their the powers uh, is run from Buenos Aires. Uh, the CIA and DEA knows exactly all of this. I mean, this is not new to them. They know this. They have all this information. They know that this is going on, and they're saying we're going to look the other way. Why are we going to look the other way? Well, because we support it. Anything that is in our backyard that is going on that has a threat to socialism is like Cuba, is a threat, or like a Nicaragua, is like Guatemala. That's why our bins had to be overthrown in 1954 in Guatemala. It's not going to happen in our backyard. We will put in military dictatorships from the School of Economics, like they did in Pinochet's Chile, if we have to, or preceding Pinochet's Chile, which of course was Argentina. Okay. So they, they don't look the other way. They support it. They support it through funding. Uh, the, uh, the D agent that spoke, spoke the most about this is Agent Michael Levine. Uh, he's written many, many books about how the DEA has been undermined by the CIA. I think the best book to read about this, and I know we're going to talk later about Camarena, uh, 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 the best book is probably James Mills' book. There's very little attention. It's called, um, uh, the name escapes me, but his name is James Mills. He testified. He wrote uh, 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 Panic in Needle Park as well as another book he wrote. Uh, Underground Empire is the name. Underground Empire. He begins with Cecilia Callow. He sits with a DEA agent and they track four drug uh, runners from Cecilia Falcon all the way to East Asia. And, and you, you sit with it, it, it's unbelievable. He was never in an air. I don't even know if he's still. But anyway, uh, now uh, the Arge, head of the Argentine military is Luis Arche Gomez in 1950. And uh, he's now in prison in the U.S. for drug charges. Uh, but at that time, he was the Ministry of Interior, Argentina, running all these drug squads and uh, drug trafficking squads and killer squads and uh, making sure that this is really the beginning of, of drug, of cocaine trafficking on a large level. Even though record had, had been before, we can talk about how records drug line and traffic line is taken over by anti-Castro Cubans if you want, but I don't want to do that now. So let me just stop at this point before I go any further by just saying that the routes that are used, I live in Latin America now, so I have maps of routes that are used currently for drug trafficking. But at that time, the routes that, that were used for Chiquita banana routes, old old uh, United Fruit Company routes, banana routes. And uh, this is how most of the, uh, of the trafficking was done in those days. And uh, the money, of course, was used to, to, to fund these organizations, of which ancillary organizations came out of it. Okay? I mean, there's contingents all over the world. Let me mention one other thing, because the horse skips my mind. Did you know that Prince Bernhard of, of, of Bilderberg, of fame, of course, ruled started Bilderberg in 54 was the first meeting. He himself was a Nazi and he um, was put uh, in charge of stay behind units in Holland. No, I was not aware of that though. Um, I do believe he was a big sponsor of Interdoc uh, later. So that would certainly make sense. That's another group that had some uh, rough affiliations with the Cow as well, though they were a little bit more in the neoliberal camp. Yeah, well, he was under orders from M16. He was a double agent. And M16 put him under order, orders to organize to, to right-wing Dutch state-behind units as part of Vladimir. And, um, and, and, and you can read that in a book that I have here that's really good called Puppet Masters 
by Philip Willen. Oh it's yeah, that's a great one. Uh, George, really George, did you have something to interject there? Yeah, the other that is very interesting about Prince Bernard. I've heard a bit about his, uh, you know, his Nazi affiliation. What also ties into this the fact that he's been accused multiple times of being part of these elite pedophile rings, and in fact, he has been a a house guest of none other than Tweet Kimball, who's involved in the sort of the Colorado branch of the uh, the White Eagle Underground, which we'll talk about later. Is this whole cult, you know, this whole cult and Nazi network that has tentacles, you know, into all of these different Latin American organized crime rings. So you can see these connections across the nation uh, with these sorts of, you know, underground Nazi networks throughout all of this. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I'm fascinated by one thing, if I can just intercede. You know, Bernard's been accused of, he was accused of accepting a million dollar bribe in the U.S. fighter aircraft Lockheed scandal. I don't know if you remember that. It was back in the 70s. You were probably too young, but he was, he's, yeah. yes. He's, How many people were involved in the Lockheed scandal? Oh, my God. Like, yeah, the Moonies. Yeah. Moonies. Yeah, the Moonies, like Kadama, I think, was involved. Like, who wasn't involved in the freaking Lockheed scandal in the 70s, man? Good God. Bernard was a jerk. Bernard was on the board of, 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 of IG Farben at one time. Um, you know, he worked very closely with Lord Carrington and the CFR. Uh, he was a decided Nazi in the early 1930s. He joined the Nazi party in 1930, eventually donning an SS uniform. By 35, he was gainfully employed in IG Farben's intelligence department, NW7. He marries Princess Giuliani, the daughter of the Dutch queen, and of course, he now is a piece of prince. And then their marriage ceremony, Moni, uh, they're singing the horse vessel song, which is the old anthem of the Nazis. <laughs> and shortly after the marriage, she travels to Berlin for a private meeting with Hitler, who's very publicly in, in happy about his marriage and so forth and so on and so on. And then he moves on to work with British intelligence. And then, then he, uh, 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 he tries to work with us, but Dwight uh, uh, Eisenhower refused any sensitive intelligence to him saying that he was a no good bum. But this guy, yeah, he's all over the map. He was an SS officer, a war star. Well, uh, very interesting last point about Bernhardt. Ian Fleming from N15, he scrutinized Bernhardt back in the 40s, signed him into the British Army as a trusted liaison officer. I mean, Bernhardt's life is like, reads like this. Oh, yeah. Well, if I'm not mistaken, too, I believe Bernhardt was uh, a descendant of William of Orange. Uh, which is interesting because, um, of course, in the UK, the Orange Lodges were set up. Um, again, I did a, a great show with Richard B. Spence in the Orange Lodges on the subscribers section. But uh, in a lot of ways, the Orange Lodge was kind of the OG stay behind network, if you will, uh, in Ireland and so forth. And uh, I know we've talked a lot about the Nazis role in this, and it was significant, but um, the British deserve a lot of credit too. I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, the stay behinds were kind of a direct offshoot of uh, Operation Jedburg that they had run during the Second World War. And uh, really the Nazis modeled a lot of their own special operations activities using these types of things on what the British had already been doing. So um, yeah, uh, Her Majesty or His Majesty's uh, service was uh, well adept at these techniques, <laughs> really arguably. But it's interesting. It's interesting what, what, what your guest says, which is, is, that, is that Bernhard, yes, has been attached to many, 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 many accusations of, of, of pedophilia and, and, and uh, was actually uh, uh, 
thought of by his friend as as a pedophilia. So I'll be interested to hear some of these uh, uh, notions that you have uh, regarding his connections to these various groups. It's very, very interesting. Well, all right, then. On the topic of pedophilia, let's get going. All right. Colonial Dignidad. This was effectively a cult that was established in Chile during the early 1960s by German nationals, several of whom were former Nazis. Shocker there. During the Pinochet years, it would become an infamous detention and torture facility. Many dissidents disappeared at the colony. Beyond this, the cult's head, a certain Paul Schaefer, was an arch pedophile abuse guilty of abusing dozens of children over decades. The colony was also heavily involved in arms trafficking. And just to get back to the allegations of torture here, it needs to be emphasized how horrendous this stuff was. I mean, they had like, uh, you know, chambers that they would seal them in almost like, you know, the facility's bodies would be put in in morgues. Uh, They would be hooked up to devices where electrical shock could be administered to various parts of their bodies, including their testicles. they were, you know, subjected to a lot of this, you know, type of uh, sensory deprivation and isolation and electroshock, uh, all to the sounds of Wigner, uh, Wagner playing in the background. Uh, and then also there was the use of uh, German shepherds, apparently, in some of the interrogations. I've heard rumors that uh, they were threatened with having their testicles mauled off. And in some cases that actually went through. Uh, so, yeah, this is the type of stuff that... Uh, went on at the colony okay and between uh Herr Schaefer raping uh children so this is what this place was about and while this was going on of course it's important to mention that the the, the pedophilia aside for the, for the bottom moment that the terror that you you, know, you just iterated uh, because okay is being taught in the school of America's to Latin for to, to what will, will, will in the future become Latin America. Well, they were, yeah, they were instructing people at the colony. I mean, they were bringing like, uh, you know, the DINA, right. you know, Pinochet's intelligence service in there so they could, you know, witness, you know, I mean, the, you know, how you needed to gradually like raise the electrical currents when you were trying to shock somebody's testicles so you didn't cook them too fast, Danny. You know, well, the reason, was- and, why, and why, because if we get back to the AAA, um, uh, you must, you might remember the fame, the famous automobile manufacturing shop uh, that was right in the middle of the city. It's very famous, and it was turned into. It was basically Dino Posa turned it into a uh, under the generals turned it into a a, 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 a colonia dignidad without the pedophilia, and so it was there that that really that 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 that, 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 that the horrendous uh, te- techniques were 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 calibrated and and and, and calcified. And, 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 and produced. And, and, and from there, they were exported to Chile. Remember, Chile's people were all trained by Argentinians. The very important aspect. Argentine was our place first. But because of its close proximity to Germany, okay, we decided that, the, and, and, and because of, 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 of the, the huge, and because of other issues, which we'll talk about later. Uh, having to do with Rockefeller and having to do with interests in Latin America, uh, our pivot went to basically to, to, to Chile. But the horrendous uh, things that under Chile, in colonial dignidad, uh, were replicas of what went on in Argentina um, just years before. Absolutely. Now, 
During the Condor years, the colony also became a crucial node in the network. It helped coordinate communications coming from various nations involved in Condor and provided an ideal locale to disappear prisoners to. Because again, you know, you have to remember Condor was a transnational effort. I mean, frequently, you know, if you had uh, a quote unquote Marxist, you know, terrorist from uh, Argentina, uh, you know, who had fled to Chile, for instance, you know, the Chilean Secret Service would then capture him and torture him for the Argentinians or turn him over to them. And as Danny had gotten to earlier, you know, I mean, this went beyond Latin America. They carried out assassinations in the U.S. and Italy and so on. It was very much a national international effort. Okay. And you know, it, it's important that, because it was an earlier Operation Condor which is more curious. It was a drug eradication program in Mexico that began in 75, and it continued till 85. It was named Operation Condor by the United States government. And um, it, of course, it didn't work. But um, a, a, lot of, a, this, a lot of this stuff was, 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 was practiced uh, under, in, under Mexico's DFS, yeah. uh, which is uh, the Federales which were trained by the Argentinians as well, and also by Nazar Haro, who was a crucial CIA, Miguel Nazar Haro, who was a crucial CIA asset and also was an, Isra is an Israeli. And they, and they contracted with a company called Evergreen International Aviation, which had CIA connections, too numerous to count. And I just, if anybody doesn't think that the CIA didn't know that any of this from colonial to all the other colonias we're going to mention is is it's just it's just plain wrong. Recently, there are documents that have just been come up. Uh, the one document, actually, from my point of view, Operation Condor never ended, and from, from the point of view of many of us in in Latin America, uh, the fear of Operation Condor and the you know fatal knock on the door or busting of the door is always it was always always there. Okay. Always there. Uh, we wonder why Kirchner, Chavez, and a Paraguayan president all got cancer in the same year. Um, there's just too many questions we still have. Here's what we do have, uh, though. I just want to mention, Stephen, before I, you go on about Operation Condor. This was issued. So it's, 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 this is a Buenos Aires FBI agent, Robert Scheer, sent the following cable to the D.C. Describer, describing Operation Condor. Okay, This was in 1970. And it's a quote, Operation Condor, the code name for collection, exchange, storage, intelligence regarding leftist, communists, and Marxists, established between cooperating intelligence services in South America to eliminate Marxist activities. Okay, and it's, I'm still quoting him. This is a cable he's sending out. It's just been recent, recently surfaced uh, through declassification. Okay. Uh, operation Parted for, for Joint Operation Against Targets in Member Countries. Third and secret phase of operation involves formation of special teams from member countries who travel anywhere in the world to carry out sanctions. Okay, what they, they call them sanctions in the U.S. Up to assassination against terrorists from member countries. Special team uh, from Operation Condor which could be sent to locate and survey target. When located, second team would be sent out, carry out sanction. And that's the end of the quote. This is a 1979 Senate report based on CIA files. Okay, uh, uh, and it says that such a phase, quote, such such a phase three operation was planned in 1974 and planned on killing three European leftists, and one was Carlos. So this 
This is just, they just has come out. This is a new, new documentation on Condor which has come out. And Portugal was involved as well in, in, in much of this. And of course, so was Spain. Well, getting into uh, the international component here, like, uh, you know, another thing that needs to be emphasized are the links that Condor had to a lot of the European stay-behinds. And in the case of Colonia Dignidad specifically, it developed close relations with Le Cercal during the 1970s. Now, a figure linked to Le Cercal, who had actually been a uh, founder, would provide the colony with uh, international legal representation when its crimes were leaked. Uh, or excuse me, uh, figured linked to Le Cercal. He wasn't one of the founders, but he was a quite a significant international attorney, though a founder of Le Cercal was in regular contact with the colony. And at one point, they even had a picture displayed of this gentleman in their reception area, uh, as I believe, for quite a few years. So more ties on Le Cercal and the colony. Check out my book, Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, because this is really crucial to the next point we're getting into. Okay, so the strategy of tension is also ravaging Europe during this time frame. This is another point to emphasize as well. It kicked off around 1968, which was a crucial year for a lot of this stuff. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, essentially this whole thing went around the notion of terrorism, whether used by the right or left, it could be used to destabilize national governments and pave the way for a military coup. And this in turn would create a climate that was more favorable to the return of fascism. Now, as I got into earlier, the strategy of tension probably had its origins in the Laguerre Revolution, a concept that had been developed by elements of the French military, and then it was brought into a, a lot of terror groups like the OAS and the Ginter Press and these types of groups. A lot of the stuff I also got into strange tales of the parapolitical. But in case you're wondering for the year 68, why this is so crucial to all of this, uh, in the United States, uh, this is around the time when the Tet Offensive had happened and it had created, I mean, obviously the anti-war movement had already been brewing leading up to 68, but this was, I think, kind of a crucial turning point when a good chunk of the public uh, began to become disillusioned with Vietnam uh, here in Europe. You know, of course, you had the student revolts in Paris. Uh, May of 68, and that whole famous incident. Um, at this point in time, there had been something of an ongoing civil war on the French right between the de Gaullist faction and uh, the OAS. Uh, after the student revolts broke out, they started to bury the hatchet, and this brought a lot more humanity to the far right in general in Europe. So there were some of these factors as well. But basically, uh, a lot of the members in the establishment in Western Europe and the U.S. were becoming... Uh, very unnerved by some of the things that were going on in terms of the anti-war movement, uh, you know, the growing uh, demand for social justice, for civil rights, all this other kind of stuff. And it was felt that uh, there needed to be a response to it. And that response was the strategy of tension. I think it's still a response. Well, yeah, it, it's, it never really stopped. I'm just, you know, trying to put this in perspective. But you're right. But historically, I think, I think, I think you're right. You're, you're, you're right. I'm, I'm looking at puppet masters it's in front of me, and I'm, I'm on just page 15. It says, but what, but what it did to Italy was just unbelievable. Yeah. I, I, what it, it did to Italy in, in 1948, okay, which was, which was the pivot point for the Central Intelligence Agency in many ways. And they had been running a strategy of tension, uh, uh, even in 1948. But if you officially want to pinpoint it at 68, it, it certainly would make sense in a historical context like that. Because it was a, a, happening around the world. In 68, there was a French rebellion 
of students and workers that uh, Deval had actually leave the country. <laughs> okay, he, could, he, he actually flew out of the country. And he gave up the presidency for a while, then he was able to come back. Okay, you saw it in Germany, uh, and it was going on in Italy as well, even though a great deal of what was going on in Italy was um, uh, uh, rightist factions posing as uh, uh, leftist, uh, basically false flag type operations. Yeah, but certainly the strategy of tension was designed to keep, was, everything was about fighting the Soviet Union. This is what we got to keep going back to. It's the, what scared the bourgeoisie in the world, of the rich people in the world, more than anything else, was the 1917 revolution in Russia because it was the first class revolution in the history of the world. There had been movements before, people had been overthrown before, a king or a baron, but nothing on the scale of a class movement. And it scared the hell out of them. And, and and that's why they went toward fascism. I mean, that and the decaying and rotting a capitalist economy, and they went for, toward fascism. So these political expressions, this strategy of tension, is, I would claim, is being used right now in the United States of America by the ruling class because it works. It, it's just being used differently. It's now it's being used with a constant barrage of Facebook, and Instagram, and technology, and it's turning into a techno, as I spoke in my first interview with you on this thing that, you know, there's a technological fascism, which is a different form of fascism. Uh, but, but but people are constantly on edge. I mean, uh, where where you socialize, I'm sure, people are constantly on edge. What's the new terrifying piece of news today? What's the new scare? Is it the picture on TV of the syringe or is it the mass Muslim, uh, you know? Uh, for my entire life, there's been war. There's never been peace. You know, I'm close to 70, my entire life, my whole life. And it, it's all been about the same thing. And it's always been a strategy of tension. Always been, always, always been. Nixon was certainly a strategy of tension uh, in this country and in, 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 in being in the civil rights movement. You know, and, and the COINTELPRO was a strategy of tension. Uh, it just takes different forms in different countries. And uh, in the United States, I think uh, our strategy of tension turned into the also Operation Chaos, uh, you know, was involved in the United States version of the strategy of tension. And, uh, and, and that's where your, or your other guests would probably have more to add about the emergence of a great deal of, of what heretofore we didn't have in the United States, with so much of, which were the, this, which were cults. I mean, you know, huge cults. Just, I mean, it's like, you know, there were serial. Okay, there was when I was in, grew up in the 1950s in Nevada, and I grew up in Las Vegas from '63 to to '71 when the mob owned owned, owned, owned Nevada. It was a real Nevada. Uh, I mean, you never heard of a serial killer. I mean, if you did in the United States, I mean, it was something in a haunted, you know, a movie or something. Now, if you're about a serial killer on the news, it's, it's been normalized. It's, it's everything's normalized, and 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 so much of of, of our, our our everyday existence today now is is the normalization of our past, and that's why the shows are so important. And I hope that listeners can pull out of them our past, because Stephen, I'm sure you have more at this point. Michelle, I'm going to give you the floor to add more about that strategy of tension in 1968 so that listeners can now begin to think about their own lives and ask themselves, how might that strategy of tension be being used today and by who? 
Okay, so the strategy of tension uh, moved to Belgium during a period known as the bloody 1980s. That was kind of the next major outpost of it uh, after what had been done to Italy throughout the 70s. So two Le Cercal figures implicated in the events are Paul Vanden Benantz, uh, probably butchering that, so we're just going to go with VDB uh, from here on out, and Baron Benant de Vinson, Vonson, I'm not sure exactly, probably destroying that too, but he was a uh, Nazi collaborator. He had the nickname the Black Baron, uh, not to be confused with Italy's the Black Prince. So another thing these two figures have been linked to is the Dutroux affair. I'm sure many people listening to the farm are familiar, but for the uninitiated, it broke out in the 1990s and it revolved around a serial killer, quote unquote, known as Mark Dutroux. Dutroux had several buildings uh, across the nation furnished with variable dungeons underneath where he kept largely minors that he raped and tortured. Now, there is compelling evidence that Dutroux was part of a ring that also procured minors for senior political figures in the Belgian government. A massive protest broke out in Belgium over these allegations during the late 90s and it nearly toppled said government. Now, there's also evidence that the ring Dutroux worked for was involved in the Belgian stay-behinds. Indeed, the first indications of these VIP pedophile rings came from a guy called Paul Latinius, who was a defense intelligence agency asset to boot. He founded his own far-right terror group called the Westland New Post. Uh, to give you some indication of what it was really about, this whole the Westland New Post was always uh, described in its English um, uh, writing. Uh, it was never, I think, even put into uh, Flemish or anything like that, or Dutch. So, yeah. Anyway, Latinius committed suicide, like a lot of these people, under dubious circumstances, not long after he started talking about uh, an insurance policy that he had set up. Effectively, and just uh, go for it. Sorry, yeah. Now I was going to say, yeah, just to add a you know a couple more sort of things about the you know how the Westland New Post and how they tie into it. There's another curious connection through a, a figure named uh, Madani Buhush. I the name is spelled B O U. H O U C H E, and he was, you know, he was a pretty, he was a figure in the Belgian police force, basically involved in all sorts of domestic terror attacks and incidences of, you know, theft of gold and other resources that were being transported. He was a suspect in the Brabant killings, which was one big sort of unsolved spree killing uh, cases that was in Belgium. And he actually, he had a protege, interestingly enough, named Jean Francois Bouslick, who was himself. Uh, Buslik was connected to uh, the local sort of DEA station chief, Frank Eaton, who was heading up the supposed anti-drug efforts, but seems to have actually been protecting drug traffickers. And then Buslik actually ended up going over to Miami, basically Miami of all places, where he became the instructor at the same Florida flight school where one of Jeffrey Epstein's pilots and also some of the 9-11 hijackers ended up training. So there's a some very curious connections you see with these Westland New Post figures and Buhush himself was a likely associate of Michael Nihol, one of Dutroux, basically Dutroux's political connection. Buhush was also implicated by Regina Luf and I think some of the other Dutroux witnesses as a trafficker of children in the scandal. So there's, you know, direct connection, direct connections between the Westland New Post and the, you know, uh, and the, you know, these, ter these broader terror networks globally and to, right to the Dutro affair is, and of course, with U.S. intelligence constantly in the background, as you allude to. Absolutely. You know, it's a really a fascinating 
enunciation of what you just said because uh, as we, I, hopefully we'll be, have time to talk uh, the show or another show about uh, uh, the use of religious organizations by Central Intelligence Agency uh, uh, to penetrate countries throughout the world uh, and how that was given up uh, basically uh, uh, not given up but uh, has been re was replaced in, in 1974 1975 by Nelson Rockefeller uh, by the use of missionary organizations, uh, especially specifically in Mexico, uh, by, by a man that you may know by the name of Cameron Tom, Tom, uh, Thompson, who set, who set up a mission, missionary organization. Uh, he was uh, in July, in, in July 20, uh, 1979, uh, we have the Founder Denies Language Institute is tied to CIA. Uh, that's a whole other story, but it, it's really a story of uh, what you kind of just hit on, and that is the use of, of not just cults, but religious of, of, uh, organizations, whether it's the UK or Los Tecos, or whether it happens to be a, ones in Bolivia that are now uh, out of power, but were in power up until about a year ago, uh, et cetera, or the evangelicals in Brazil have all been weaponized by the uh, United States intelligence system for a very, very long time. Yeah, we'll get into that here in a little bit. Um, but so Latinius, he commits suicide after he starts talking about his insurance policy, which was allegedly going to implicate uh, several figures from the Belgian establishment and acts of pedophilia, uh, though it obviously uh, did not do him that much good. Now, I bring up this because it's important to understand that Detroit and Colonia Dignidad were not isolated in the respective countries, but were part of the broader Le Cercal complex, okay? So further, Colonia Dignidad was also getting children from Germany at one point. I bring this up because we're going to see another colony with indications of trafficking minors in just a little bit. So this is kind of a pattern here. All right. And, and we saw it in, and we saw it recently in Germany. There's been the finding of, of, of torture chambers underneath, the, uh, I believe, of, of, of a house that's being renovated or something. So they were indeed in many countries throughout the world. All right, for now, yeah. let's, what, did you have something to add, George? No, I mean, just add, yeah, I, I've heard of those stories coming up too, and it seems that it's some tragically common pattern. There was, I think it might've been the same story or related story about how there were these two, you know, these two German pedophiles involved in, you know, abuse that was going on for years and never being, never being looked at by police at all, just being brushed aside. It's a tragically common pattern. And you really see the elements of law enforcement coming together and basically being totally in line with what these underground sort of stay behind tight networks are doing to enable and facilitate the operations of these pedophile rings. It's a tragically common pattern throughout the world. And it very often seems to have these Nazi and you know gladio type stay behind undertones in their operations. Yeah, I mean, it is a, a certainly fascinating reoccurrence, uh, to put it mildly. All right, so getting back to the dirty wars in the America. Now, arguably, it also kicked off in a big way in the Americas in Mexico in 1968 as well, uh, which is another topic that's very rarely addressed. Now, there was the massacre at the football stadium there where an estimated several hundred students were killed. Usually when people talk about Mexico's dirty war, that's the big event. And then there were some minor things afterwards. But, you know, that was actually only the beginning. 
So the massacre at the football stadium was carried out by the Mexican army. In the aftermath, there were concerns as to whether the army had the testocular fortitude needed to continue with the program. So enter the DFS, this organization that Danny's been alluding to, the Federales, for years Mexico's principal intelligence service. So the DFS was somewhat akin to a militarized version of the FBI, but it had been set up by the CIA in the aftermath of the Second World War, and it would continue to maintain ties with the CIA pretty much throughout the rest of its history. So at the heart of the DFS, in turn, was a secret society known as Los Tecos, which we've talked about a little bit before. Several members of this outfit, including founder Carlos Cuesta Gallardo, were literal assets of Nazi Germany during the war. Indeed, Gallardo had actually spent much of the war in Germany. So beginning in the 1970s, Los Tecos, working through the DFS, would begin establishing death squads known as the Wiper Gate. Now, these militias would be used to wage an especially brutal terror campaign in Mexico throughout the 1970s, and arguably it's never really ended. So the dirty war in Mexico is often downplayed in relation to those in Argentina and Chile, but it was every bit as brutal. And more importantly, it predated these efforts, at least when they formally got going. So Los Tecos may even have been, uh, begun creating their own private militias with the assistance of militant anti-Castro groups like Alpha 66 as far back as the mid-1960s. The long-standing ties between Los Tecos and the anti-Castro Cubans will take on more significance in a moment here. So it's possible Los Tecos was active even before the you know, formal strategy of tension was launched in Europe in these militia-type activities. So Los Tecos was keen to explore their methods to the west of Latin America. To this end, they helped establish the uh, Confederacion Anticomunisto Latinoamericano, or CAL, which is what we're going to go with from here on out, during 1972. From the beginning, CAL leaders saw it as their duty to create death squads in every country in Latin America. By early 1974, the CAL was facilitating meetings among military, police, and right-wing militias throughout the Americas. It was through these meetings that the genesis of Condor was established. So for more on these efforts see, uh, on Los Tecos and what they were up to, I urge you guys to check out the Tecos edition of the Farms World Anti-Communist League series. CAL was a part of the Waggle network, you know, to put this in perspective for people who have been following the Waggle series and got into this one. So this is the same network that we're talking about here that was doing all this stuff that we had gotten into in the Wackle series. So broadly speaking, this is the structure that produced Latin America's dirty wars uh, during the Cold War. It originated in Mexico with this cold called Los Tecos. And the fact that Los Tecos featured so many former Nazi collaborators raises the possibility that there was even an earlier collaboration in these efforts going back with their European counterparts. The Nazis had tried to use Los Tecos as a paramilitary force during the Second World War, but they were more interested in attacking their local opponents. So with the Nazi connections to these death squads pretty firmly established, I think by this point, I want to shift gears and talk about the illicit drug trade for one. Now, for years, there were rumors that the Nazis were actually the ones running the drug trade in Latin America. Henry Kruger explored this possibility in the 1980 classic, The Great Heroin Crew. Now, some 40 years later, I feel it's safe in saying that Cougar was on to something. Now, we've already talked about Class Barbie during the Wackle series. Danny just got into him a little bit earlier, so I don't want to belabor the point here. But Barbie, an infamous Nazi war criminal, was 
openly running the drug trade in Bolivia by the end of the 1970s. He was aided in these efforts by people like Stefano Della Shayak, the guy we were talking about earlier, the Black Bombardier, or Shorty, whatever you want to call this fucking clown, who uh, has never really done any prison sentence, despite the uh, fact that he's been involved in acts of terrorism and assassination across the freaking world. Okay, so elsewhere, people like Pinochet were even getting a cut of the cocaine traffic. Okay, that's been established. So the early Mm -hmm. cocaine trade in Bolivia There's really no question the Nazis were involved. But once Barbary went down, that was the end of it, right? Well, not exactly. So let's look at Colombia for a moment. The Nazis had already established a significant presence there prior to the Second World War. By the time the war arrived, nearly 6,000 people connected to the Axis powers, including 4,000 Germans, had resided in Colombia. A significant figure among the German community there was Hans Baumann, who may have overseen German espionage efforts there. By the 1930s, he was the director of a major university in Colombia. And interestingly, that was based out of Medellin. As I'm sure many of you are aware, some 40 years later, Medellin would emerge to become the home of one of the most notorious drug cartels to ever operate. And a key figure in the Medellin cartel was a man named Carlos Lanar. He, was an, he has an interesting background. His father was a German engineer who managed to immigrate to Colombia before World War II ended. Carlos was born in 1947 to a Colombian mother. Despite having a European engineer for a father, Leonard was reportedly heading a car ring by the mid-1970s to make money in Medellin. Yeah, this greased the way for his entry into the cartel world. So by all accounts, Leonard was a fanatical Nazi. Okay, so here's what John Roberts, a former hitman from the Gambino family, and if you guys don't know who John Roberts is, I urge you guys to check out the documentary Cocaine Cowboys. Uh, This guy actually might have been involved in the Phoenix program in Vietnam, a lot of other activities. Point being, John Roberts has killed quite a few people, and he was actually unsettled by Carlos. So he said this about Carlos. Leonard hero-worshipped Hitler. He talked about this openly. I don't care who you are. If you talk about how you want to make a Nazi state in South America and become the new Hitler, people will lose confidence in you. That's well put, John. So anyway, Roberts is referring to a Nazi political party, the MCLN, that later had established in 1983. Later, seriously attempted to establish a Nazi state in Colombia by the mid-1980s. I mean, he routinely wore swastikas and gave the faithful Nazi salute to his followers. He extolled Hitler as the greatest warrior in history, quote unquote, and openly spoke of cocaine as the Nazi secret weapon to smash US imperialism. This type of activity eventually led to later losing favor in the Medellin cartel, most likely because he was a little too open about what was behind it. He was eventually extradited to the US in 1987, where he is still serving a lengthy prison sentence. He has made frequent requests to have his incarceration, incarceration transferred to quote, the fatherland, i.e. Germany. So to recap, When the cocaine trade really started to take off during the mid-1970s, it was eventually based out of Bolivia, then moved to Colombia. In the case of Bolivia, it was literally overseen by a Nazi war criminal. This is a matter of historic record. When it gravitated to Colombia, 
it was overseen by a cartel figure, cartel featuring a top lieutenant who was partly German and a fanatical Nazi in his own right. Thus, there was a discernible Nazi presence in what was arguably became the largest growth industry in the world by the 1980s, namely the international cocaine trade. Okay, so that brings us back to Mexico. By the mid-1980s, the Mexican cartels began to take over the cocaine trade. However, they were already a lot of sketchy characters actively. They were active among the drug traffickers in Mexico in the 1970s. And a fair amount of them were either Cuban and or American. Now we're going to get, we're going to start off uh, by looking at one of the first Mexico-based traffickers to gain notoriety. Nixon basically broke the Corsican connection line and he put in charge the anti-Castro Cubans. And they basically took over the drug cartels. Now, were they Nazis? Well, let's get to, let's get to Carlos later. Carlos Lader was more of a buffoon than a Nazi. He was more of an opportunist. He happened to have and gone to jail with, uh, I think it was Escobar, uh, and, and convinced Escobar that he could make more money uh, doing what he did with, uh, with doing cocaine than he could uh, um, uh, moving cars through uh, old, old uh, uh, banana routes. Uh, he, he was really never a. a a threat. He also loved John Lennon in peace. He had pictures of John Lennon up in his room as well. By the way, Carlos later was let out of a, a prison in 2020, and he's now uh, receiving asylum in Germany. Uh, just uh, for, your, for your knowledge, uh, there is no drug uh, smuggler. The drug that he was he smuggled more drugs into the United States and allowed for the the, the smuggling of more drugs in the United States. There are probably almost anybody but his supplier, Monasteros, uh, who also supplies the Sicilia Falcon. Um, and there, there's nobody like this that gets let out, okay, and, and is allowed to go to Germany and receive, uh, you know, money and a pension. Uh, I mean, what does he know? I, I mean, we don't we wait. But, but I doubt that he had he had really any fundamental, uh, realistic uh, aspirations or connections to anything uh, German other than the fact that he uh, did a lot of cocaine and he was out of his mind and he had too much money and he was crazy. Now, Cecilia Falcone is a whole different thing because he was put into operations in Mexico to move the new route that was to be used uh, from Peru. The Peru is really the first nation to have discovered uh, the drug uh, 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 the whole drug scene it was in Peru where the base came from. It still, it still is. Colombia is basically a growing point. Uh, but Peru is where the base came from. So I asked anti-Castro Cubans that were really, really pissed off in 1963 and 1964. And with Vietnam taking the show and the hippies and the whole thing, and there was no room. Nobody cared about their Castro and their Cuba other than to idolize him. And so they had nowhere to go. And the CIA had to do something for them. They had to use them because they were trained assassins and they knew exactly what they were doing. So they, they developed a sanctuary for them uh, in Miami. It's where all of the uh, decaying uh, dictators from Latin America end up. 
By the mid-1980s, much the drug trade uh, in Mexico was controlled by one cartel, the Guadalajara outfit. Uh, This, along with the Gulf cartel, are the two principal cartels from which virtually all of Mexico's modern-day cartels originated from. Uh, So the Guadalajara cartel in particular is where such infamous outfits as the Sonora, the Juarez, and the Sinaloa cartels come from. The latter may be the most powerful organized crime syndicate in the Western Hemisphere circa 2021. Now, we've already talked a lot about the Guadalajara cartel and the Wackle Lost Tickles episodes. I'm not going to delve too deeply into that here. Uh, but suffice to say, there are strong indications that the cartel enjoyed close links uh, to Los Tecos. The Guadalajara cartel was headed by a guy called Miguel Angel Felix Guadalajara uh, Gallardo. As was noted above, Los Tecos uh, was founded by a name, man, man named Carlos Costa Gallardo. Were they related? I've been a- unable to determine yes or no but their family names came from similar regions of Mexico. Further, the Guadalajara cartel enjoyed <clears throat> close relations with the DFS. And Los Tecos may well have been uh, the ruling body behind the DFS. And finally, Mexican journalist Manuel Buenta was murdered in the mid-1980s while investigating both Los Tecos' links to the DFS as well as the DFS drug cartel links. So was Manuel about to make some connections to uh, one or either of the U.S. Uh, on the U.S. or Mexican side of the border? Who knows? But yeah, it was certainly uh, interesting with a lot of these things at play by the 1980s. So in point of fact, there were a lot of connections the Americans probably never want to see the light of day. The Mexican security forces were being run by a cult headed by a former Nazi was just one of them. Now we're going to turn our attention to the saga of Enrique Kid Camarena. He was an American DEA agent who was kidnapped and brutally tortured and murdered by the Guadalajara cartel during the mid-1980s. The Camarena saga brings up some of the Guadalajara cartel's other partners. So Danny, do you want to get into the Camarena kidnapping a bit here? For those who really want to know, they can watch, unfortunately, our lives become reduced to Netflix. But the Netflix did have a good one called The Last Narc. What's important about Camarena is what was important about the DEA and the CIA. The DEA would come across a major, huge drug drug trafficker like Carl Quintero, okay? And the CIA would say, drop it, don't bust him, okay? He's working for U.S. intelligence, right? Well, what's important about Camarena is Camarena was, was basically kidnapped and he was tortured for days, okay? as people did coke and beat his head in. And who was in the room with him? Felix Rodriguez. And who is Felix Rodriguez? Felix Rodriguez is the one who killed Che Guevara. He's the one that cut his hands off. He's the one that has his hands. Felix Rodriguez was an anti-Castro Cuban who failed in the Bay of Pigs. Felix Rodriguez probably was involved in the assassination of JJFK in some form or another. Felix Rodriguez was probably the murder of Oscar Romero, okay, the Archbishop of El Salvador. Felix Rodriguez was just given one month ago the Medal of Honor of Miami by Juan DeSantis for all the crimes and the dirt and the filth that he's created down here in Latin America. He's just been given a, 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 a whatever I just said. 
All right. Um, before moving on, I wanted to cover another potential partner of the Guadalajara cartel, one you probably never heard of. This would be the fundamentalist Mormon family known as the LeBarons. So over the course of the last 70 years or so, the LeBaron family has established uh, several cults, mostly based out of Mexico. The most notable ones are the Church of the Firstborn, which is still active today, and the Church of the Lambborn. So beginning in the 1970s, these cults were engaged in a low-key civil war with one another. At the forefront of these efforts was Erville LeBaron, the so-called Mormon Manson. So before he broke with his brothers, he was a member of the Church of the Firstborn. During the 1950s, the church acquired an interesting member, Earl Jensen. He's been described as a former FBI and CIA agent, well-versed in, quote, electronics and skullduggery. Jensen had recently retired from the CIA after serving a stint as a, quote, security attache at the American Embassy in Tel Aviv. When Earl Jensen and his wife Carol initially relocated to Mexico, they were a prosperous upper middle class family. The Church of the Firstborn was based out of Colonia Le Baron in the Mexican state of Chihuahua. When they signed up, it had no electricity or running water. This is a prosperous middle class Mormon family we're talking about who decided to relocate there. Okay, so both Earl and Carol have become so enamored with the LeBarons that they allowed Erville LeBaron to make their daughter Christina one of his plural wives in 1963. At the time, Erville was 38 and Christina was 13. Erville eventually bestowed the honor of making Christina his legal wife in 1966 after they were wed in Arizona. It must have been just wonderful for everybody involved. Also during the late 1963 period, the Church of the Firstborn was investigated for possible links to the Kennedy assassination. Eddie Harvey Oswald entered Mexican, Mexico at Laredo, Texas on September 26, 63. His companion on this Red Arrow bus he was on was Albert Osborne, alias John Howard Bowen. And he'd been running a school for highly professional marksmen in Oaxaca, Mexico since 1934. Okay, now the cover for the place was a mission. And again, I hope we get the times of, of the book that is a, is a must to read. It's called Thy Will Be Done. It's 900, 900 and some odd pages, but it, it's everything on, on CIA missionaries and Nazis in Latin America. Um, but it shows that the FBI records on Boeing go back to 42 uh, to Tennessee. And I'm not going to go into it deeply, but he operated a camp for boys known as Campfire Council. Uh, where he taught uh, Nazi uh, activities, he engaged in Nazi activities, he stopped on the American flag. Uh, he ended up working for the Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, later investigation revealed that Oswald had a connection, Osborne, excuse me, had a, had a connection to Division 5 of the FBI and to Clay Shaw's Central Mondial Commercial with Cuban. Cuban with funding coming from New Orleans for the CIA, from anti-Castro Cubans and others. And it wasn't until the late 1960s that the LeBarons gained real infamy, however. This is when Irville broke from the Church of the Firstborn and began the family feud that claimed the lives of nearly 40 people over the span of several decades. At the height of Irville's violence uh, was the 1970s. 
During this time, he had established links to a host of militant groups. They included the September 23 Communist League in Mexico, as well as the Minutemen in the US. There are some interesting associations as well. There was, uh, these are some uh, interesting associations to put it mildly. The League was a Marxist Leninist group fighting the Mexican government during the 1970s. Elsewhere, the Minutemen were the first modern day militia group emerging during the early Cold War period, or at least I should say the first militia to emerge during the Cold War period. What's more, Irville claimed that he was involved with drug tra or arms trafficking and running arms into Mexico for the September group. But one of Irville's most devoted followers alleged that he had been in contact with the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI, which had effectively run Mexico as a one-party state throughout much of the 20th century, and really pretty much still to this day. So the Baron's base in the PRU was also said to be around the Veracruz region. All right, so by 1976, Irville had started the Society for American Patriots, or SAP. The SAP easily integrated itself with the far-right fringes of the time, established links with outfits such as the KKK, the Posse Comitatus, and the Aryan Nations. The same milieu in which fundamentalist Mormonisms intersected with far-right groups would continue into the 90s as the family of serial killer, quote-unquote, Israel Keys demonstrates. So, you know, again, it's important to emphasize here, basically, Irvil LeBaron is trafficking arms into Mexico for an alleged Leninist Marxist group, while he's also working with all of these other, you know, far-right groups in the United States, and also carrying out a variety of uh, murders and other things that are gradually destabilizing Mexico throughout this time frame. That's the big thing you need to remember about all of this. He's really sowing a lot of chaos in this northern part of Mexico and the southwest during this period of time, which in general was a volatile one for both the U.S. and Mexico. All right. Uh, going on against the backdrop of all this is also the activities, the white brigades in Mexico, all the stuff with the Falcon and the drug trafficking in Mexico, all this is going on at the same time as well. It's really, really uh, having an effect on Mexico, to put it mildly. All right, so George, we're already talked a bit about uh, in our Ted Bundy show about how the murder of Rulon Allred, another big fundamentalist Mormon leader, uh, was carried out by members of the LeBaron cult. I think it's worth going over here again and adding some perspective on the range of the family's activities that I was just alluding to. So can you get into that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as, as you're saying, especially in the 70s was when LeBaron and his group went on this you know, relatively prodigious murder spree against all you know, manner of their perceived enemies. There were inner family disputes with his other with Herbal's other brothers. There were disputes with other uh, you know, fundamentalist sects that broke off from the official Mormon church. And basically, you know, he had this, essentially this whole doctrine that his cult would you know, believe and carry out missions on his behalf for that, you know, he that it was necessary to kill false prophets, that this was what he was being instructed to do by you know, by these spiritual forces and that he would direct his members to carry it out and they would do it all for him. And uh, in the case of Rulon Allred, he, you know, he was the leader of another, uh, just another sort of fundamentalist Mormon sect that was in a sort of rivalry with the LeBaron's group. Rulon, just for a bit of background, he was born in, incidentally was actually born in a, another one of those Mexican colonies, uh, Mexican Mormon colonies, Colonia, Colonia Dublon, which was, you know, in the Mexican state of Chihuahua, where many of these other colonies were located, born in 1906. And 
interestingly, this colony was of all places, the headquarters of the US military's uh, offensive against Pancho Villa's revolutionaries in 1916. So it's a relatively interesting location in other respects, but, but you know, Rulon Alred had established himself in Utah as you know, he ran the sort of small homeopathic medicine clinic. And he basically led this group that was would ultimately come to be known as the Apostolic United Brethren, you know, another sort of polygamous group, obviously relatively, you know, strange by most people's standards, but actually more a lot more liberal by uh, Mormon standards compared to Earl LeBaron's group. Uh, in any event, you know, yeah, to put it in perspective for the listener, they're um, they have ties to the one family that's a part of uh, sister wives. Actually, um, it's gotten to the point where there's you know even this kind of media blitz to kind of sanitize some of these up, you know, people related to the Allreds. <laughs> yeah, and we absolutely do see members of the Allred family in some other curious contexts related to the Ted Bundy case. You know, might get into in a bit, but. Ultimately, you know, he was one of those rival groups, and in the middle of LeBaron's killing spree, he directed uh, some of his followers to go to Utah and, you know, kill kill the false prophets, as he called them. And there was this, interestingly, this whole sort of organized, you know, effort, you know, multiple, I think like five total members of his group down in Mexico actually went up. There, there was a, a man named Donald, Donald Sullivan was like the sort of leader of the military forces in uh, for on behalf of LeBaron's group and he was sort of leading the charge so he came up there with a couple other individuals including uh, Raina Chinawith who was one I think he was she was Ervil LeBaron's youngest wife uh, creepily enough married when she was only 16 years old which kind of goes to show how endemic pedophilia is in the Mormon in these Mormon communities although that's not much of a secret at all but yeah, Raina, Raina Chinawith and, and another woman, they basically were the trigger men for this. They adopted disguises. I think they wore wigs and sunglasses and they, they brought guns with them. And they said pretty much just on May 10th, 1977, walked into Rulon's clinic and just you know, opened fire and killed him. And then walked out, you know, they left, they dumped their wigs and they dumped the gun in this nearby dumpster. And so ultimately, you know, that stuff was found. And traced back to uh, Reina, who was the owner of the gun. And so that was how they were able to identify that this was the work of Herbal Labyrinth's group. A lot of these individuals were ended up being extradited into the US to face charges. You know, Donald Sullivan took a deal. He pleaded guilty to conspiracy and he testified against the others. Interestingly enough, all four of the people, uh, all four of the people who were initially charged, you know, the people who were carrying out the conspiracy on behalf of Ervil, they were all acquitted, which is rather interesting. And according to the prosecutor, uh, Dave Yoakum, he, he, he said that three of the jurors actually told him that they were too scared to vote for a conviction, which seems to imply that there was some force that was making sure that, you know, basically was threatening them on behalf of Ervil LeBaron's group and that they were active there in Utah, um, even even though the group itself was, of course, you know, mainly based down in Mexico, but clearly they still had enough influence there to make sure that these convictions would not stand if, if Dave Yoakum can be believed on that point. Uh, so, I mean, all, to, all these, these, the trigger women were acquitted and the, the people who helped them in the U.S. as part of this whole new conspiracy, they were also acquitted, although Reina ended up later admitting in a tell-all book of hers that, yeah, she was the one who killed uh, you know, she was one of the trigger women who killed 
rule on all red. But around the same time, I only like, a, so this was in 1979 when the trial happened of these four people. But later that year, Ervil himself was also extradited over and he actually was convicted. And so he ended up being sent to prison and he was only there for like, I think only like two years yeah, like, at most. Yeah. Ervil, I mean, he's pretty much the only one who really did any time for any of this other than I think Heber LeBaron, who we'll get to in a moment here. But yeah, like uh, it's kind of another important thing to emphasize is a lot of the people involved in this never did any real time for their crimes. And they've acknowledged yeah. them in books and what have you. No, it's a very, uh, a very common sort of pattern is when you get into cases like these cases of parapolitical import that, you know, the key figures seem to keep skating again and again. It's, you know, almost cliche at this point to see. But yeah, I mean, Erville, he was only in prison for like two years. He ended up dying in August of 1981. So that's like two years or so after his conviction. It's kind of unclear what actually resulted in his death. There were conflicting reports about whether he had committed suicide. And they were advocating for some rather implausible ways of how that happened. Like, oh, maybe he stuck his hand down his throat and like suffocated himself or burst blood vessels. And I'm not really sure how that sort of thing is supposed to happen. Then there was another sort of alternative theory that it was a seizure and it was natural causes. So it's not really clear, but another sort of odd coincidence that shows up is that um, like just two days after Ervil dies in prison, his brother uh, Verlin LeBaron ends up dying in an auto accident down in Mexico. And apparently there at least one member of his family, I saw a video of it talking in some interview with Vice actually said that he suspects that uh, this was somehow arranged, you know, that it was not a coincidence, that it was probably not an accident. And apparently that some of Ervil's you know, latest writings or whatever before his death made some reference to Verlon, you know, being run off the road or something along those lines, which is rather creepy, but of course, the timing of these two brothers who were themselves at odds with each other, you know, Ervil wanted to kill Verlin. Part of the reason why yeah, he had been a, he'd been trying to kill Verlin for quite a few years up to this point in time, it should be kind of emphasized. Yeah, part of the reason why Rulon was like a sort of maybe a secondary goal of why of Rulon being targeted was that Verlin would supposedly go to Rulon's funeral and then they would have use that as an opportunity to kill Verlin as well. So they, they were at odds with each other to put it mildly, but at the same time, they both seem to die mysteriously around the same time as each other, which also raised the question of whether there's potentially a larger force cleaning up multiple loose ends at once. But that's, uh, sorry, just to, that's basically the deal with what happened to Rulon Alred. But what's interesting too, is that on the very same day, on May 10th, 1977, that Rulon Alred is murdered by followers of Erva LeBaron, there's another weird crime that happens in Utah that kind of becomes semi-infamous, at least there. And there's a man named Douglas Allen Yoakum, uh, last name spelled Y-O-A-K-A-M. And he was this, was this licensed gun dealer in, in the Salt Lake City area who recently had you know, started to become paranoid that he was in danger and was starting to carry weapons with him everywhere he went, wearing bulletproof vests and all that. And so on that day, on May 10th, he supposedly got a call from someone who wanted to sell him a like new rifle scope, I believe. And so he, you know, he was wary of it. So he drove out to a park in Mill Creek Canyon to do this meeting. And then while he was there, he ended up, you know, seeing this woman, he ended up seeing, you know, supposedly, you know, getting scared of what was happening or whatever. And so he saw this woman, Karen Roberson, and he basically threatened her with one of his guns. And then he, you know, tried, reportedly tried to rape her handcuffed her 
and you know, was you know, basically keeping her held captive. And then another man, Justin Toffer, uh, T-A-U-F-F-E-R, came by, tried to come to her defense, and then uh, Doug LaFell and Yoko ended up shooting both of them, uh, severely wounding Karen, although she survived and actually ended up killing Justin Toffer in this whole thing. And, and the story was incredibly weird. It also changed, like, all the initial reports were that he had tried to rape her. Then it later changed to, you know, he wasn't trying to rape her. He was just trying to, uh, you know, he was just, you know, scared of her and was trying to detain her. Interestingly enough, this new version was developed in this sort of psychological analysis done by a physician at the LDS hospital. Uh, that was one of the people who examined, uh, who examined Yoakum before the trial. So it's interesting that that resulted in the narrative changing. But... Ultimately, uh, Yoakum would end up claiming that he was paranoid because, uh, actually because of the murder that LeBaron had committed against Allred. He said that shortly before Rulon Allred's murder, Allred had actually visited him and tried to buy a gun from him for, you know, self-defense purposes, which is interesting in a way, but it also doesn't really add up because, you know, the murder didn't happen until the very same, I mean, the murder happened on the very same day uh, that he committed his own murder. It wasn't really reported that much. It's highly unlikely, and his paranoia seemed to have existed well before that point, so it's unlikely that that was the full story unless he somehow knew more about the background of what the LeBarons were up to than he sh would have, than he officially should have, or that, you know, or that there's something more to, you know, you know, or just, you know, that there was something more to him and that he had some connections to these uh, fundamentalist Mormon groups that go deeper than he ever admitted to. But it certainly is interesting to see that correspondence. And what's also weird is that uh, Yoakum's daughter ended up marrying either the son or grandson of Rulon Allred after, uh, you know, sometime later on. So you see the Allreds, so it's weird that the Allreds pop up multiple times in the story. And that does seem to hint at potential family ties that he already had to the Allreds beforehand. Uh, which may have been a better sort of explanation for why he was being so erratic and, you know, his status as a gun dealer potentially dealing with none other than Rulon Allred himself. And as discussed in the Ted Bundy episode, you know, we do see that uh, one of Ted Bundy's victims, uh, Deborah Kent, her father, Dean Kent, worked for this oil company uh, the, in Utah, the Triangle Oil Company, which was involved in some shady financial dealings later on in the 1980s. And some of the other directors of this company were people with the surname of Allred, which is very interesting as well. So that just sort of shows you how the, you know, the intertwining of the, of, you know, weapons dealing and uh, other potential crime activities with these fundamentalist Mormon groups, which of course is very strongly supported by the nature of what they were doing down in Mexico. And that relates back to what Danny was alluding to about how, you know, a lot of times it's these weird sort of religious orders that are carrying out these operations that they're, Sort of being the you know the point the point people the the sort of boots on the ground for carrying this stuff out. So you know the Mormons are a very slept on, uh, not very commonly focused on aspect of this, but they absolutely are part of it in a very significant way. When you look at the Ted Bundy case and when you look at the Mexican cartels as well, and if you know go to the Ted Bundy episode, you'll hear a lot more about how a lot of Bundy's murders are very likely tied to drug trafficking operations in the background, including things that link all the way to these Colombian uh, smuggling networks. Yeah, and I mean, another thing too, to kind of point out, you know, the Allred uh, assassination occurred in 77. I mean, this is about a little over, uh, a little less actually than a year 
uh, after um, Orlando later was uh, killed in Embassy Row, as Daniel talked about earlier, you know, and this was sort of kind of at the height of the Condor assassination uh, period. Uh, also, there was the, uh, I think it was the general who they attempted to assassinate in uh, Italy around the same time as well. So, I mean, it is interesting that, again, you have this cult that was so closely linked to Mexico uh, and Mexico itself being a big part of, you know, this kind of condor network while at the same time, you know, you have the actual condor assassinations being carried out. Uh, LeBaron is also, you know, and also should point out as well, it wasn't just um, the Allred family that he had made threats against. Uh, he had also gone to the Kingston family, uh, which is actually the wealthiest, uh, allegedly, I should say, of the fundamentalist Mormon sects. And um, a lot of the same stuff, uh, they heavily involved in incest, uh, you know, child brides, all this other kind of insanity, allegedly, allegedly. Uh, though I would <laughs> urge anybody who questions the alleged part to watch Escaping Polygamy. But anyway, uh, yeah, Ervil went to the Kingstons, uh, demanded tribute from them, essentially, um, the Kingstons uh, more or less told him to bring it on if he felt like he could, and uh, Irville declined. Um, the Salt Lake City Police also decided to not get involved in that, apparently, because they deemed the Kingstons to have um, significant security uh, precautions established or something to that effect. Uh, and it should be emphasized, a lot of these fundamentalist sects were very, you know, paramilitary in nature, um, you know, again, we've never really heard a lot specifically about the Kingstons, but there have been rumors for a lot of years. They're uh, they're quite formidable in that regard. If push comes to shove, um, the FLDS, the Fundamentalist uh, Mormon uh, El Mormon Latter Day Saint Church, the one that Warren Jeffs ended up heading. Uh, down around Colorado City and all those areas, they have the God Squad, which is another one of these uh, groups. And allegedly they kind of beefed up their security preparations because of the LeBaron killing spree. And then the Allreds also later came up with their own paramilitary force as well, which interestingly was trained uh, by a member of the 19th Special Forces Group. Uh, this is actually rather contemporary uh, during the last decade. Uh, and again, the 19th Special Forces Group would probably be a unit uh, that would be activated in the event that the United States was attacked theoretically or some other circumstances necessitating martial law. So kind of something similar to the reason why Gladio was established. So you could maybe draw some conclusions about why they would want uh, to train a paramilitary force for the Allred family. Uh, but again, this is all really speculative, but it is interesting and kind of this whole netherworld of stay behinds and cults and so forth. Uh, but let's get back here to the LeBarons. So George is just getting to Irville was arrested towards the end of the 70s. Uh, but then much of the criminal activity was taken over by his sons. And at the forefront of these efforts was Heber Nebaron. He established his own compound in Mexico based out of Sonora during the middle of the decade. By this time, he and his brothers were running a massive stolen car ring in Sonora, Arizona, and Texas. It was all highly lucrative, and Scott Anderson implies in the Four O'Clock Murders that the car ring was also being used to traffic drugs for the cartels. This is highly probable. Probable. Heber's ring was involved in moving hundreds of cars. There's just no way that this kind of operation would be going on without sanction of the cartels or the DFS for that matter. So who dominated Sonora during this time? 
the Guadalajara cartel. And indeed, Heber's compound appears to have been destroyed by the Mexican army during the mid-1980s as part of the drug raids that were, car that were targeting the Guadalajara cartel. So yeah, this is all very uh, interesting. Huber's group being targeted implies that the Mexican authorities thought that there was a connection. All right, so getting into some of the current events here with the LeBaron family. There's still a powerhouse in modern day Mexico. Colonia LeBaron uh, has now uh, become essentially a plush American style suburb with uh, the family involved in a lot of uh, successful uh, businesses and they have a lot of political figures. Well, not a lot, but they have some political figures as well in the family. Colonia LeBaron has uh, also ties to the nearby Colonia Juarez, which is uh, much more prosperous for mainline Mormon uh, families. They've openly uh, rubbed elbows with the extended family of Mitt Romney, for instance, over there at Colonia Juarez. All right, so it was during the late knots that uh, they started to gain some notoriety again. It was then that their feud with the drug cartels really started to kick off or was renewed, depending upon one's perspective. One LeBaron family member was kidnapped while two others were murdered. The family brought pressure on the Mexican government and had the army deployed to the colony. Okay, they also started bringing in arms from the U.S. And elsewhere, they became involved in a land dispute with the farming collective known as El Brazan. The LeBarons have allegedly been drilling illegal wells and stealing water in this region from decades from the farmers there. Okay, and this brings us to the most widely covered contemporary event involving the LeBaron family, the Sonora Massacre of November 2019. It was on that day that a convoy of fundamentalist Mormons were making their way from Sonora to Colonia LeBaron, which is in Chihuahua. In total, there were 17 people that were being transported in at least three vehicles. 14 were children, three were women. No adult men, no one was armed. I believe everyone in the convoy held dual Mexican-American citizenship and was a member of the LeBaron family in some capacity. Some secret ambush shocked and horrified both the U.S. and Mexico. Over 200 shell casings from AR-15 type assault rifles were found at the scene while one of the vehicles was burned. Some of the victims were potentially burned alive, basically. In total, all three of the adult women were murdered along with six children. Five of the other children were injured in the assault and three were unharmed. The murders have widely been blamed on Mexico's drug cartels, which had this ongoing dispute with the Liberans. But so too did El Brazon. On the other hand, the military-style weaponry used is beyond anything El Brazon is known to possess. And the attacks occurred in a region where the group does not have an especially strong presence. But on the other hand, the attackers were described as amateurous and undisciplined, which is in sharp contrast to the tactical units the cartels typically use. These units usually receive military-style training. On the other hand, though, they might have been pretty stoned, which is not how the cartel tactical teams normally operate. But, you know, if you're going to go out and, you know, potentially burn some kids alive, maybe you want to do a little blow or something. Who knows? Further, the profile of the victims makes no sense for a cartel. Again, murdering a dozen white American women and children in such a brutal fashion would accomplish nothing other than creating a political firestorm. And that's exactly what happened. Then President Donald Trump immediately used the incident as a pretext for offering to deploy US military forces to Mexico. He also threatened to designate the cartel, the cartels a terrorist organizations. The Barons also compared the cartels to the terrorist organizations in the press. Despite the high profile of this incident, it largely disappeared from the public spotlight after December 2019. 
arrests from a local cartel were quietly made in November 2020, nearly a year, but nearly a year later, nothing has come of it. So what happened? Well, the media's sudden lack of interest may have been due to some of the other activities the LeBarons were involved with. Specifically, I'm talking about Nexium. Yes, the cult involving Keith Raniere and members of the Brothman family, in addition to various Hollywood types. The LeBaron-Nexium relationship appears to go back at least a decade, if not further. The family participated in a documentary that was later made into a propaganda film for the cult. Nexium, not the LeBarons. In the Mark Vincetti helmed feature, Keith Raniere personally advises the LeBaron family how they can combat the Mexican drug cartels. It's comedic gold, if nothing else. The relationship between Nexium and the LeBarons may have been even closer than spiritual and tactical advice from Raniere. Colonial LeBaron was used as a recruiting ground for young girls for the Nexium cult. In exchange for escaping the violence ravaging Mexico, the girls would work as nannies in upstate New York for Ranieri. He also created a, quote, girls' school for these young women. I'm sure they were, you know, taught lots of useful life skills and so forth. They were under the care of one of uh, Keith Ranieri's high-ranking slaves, quote-unquote, which must have shown the real privilege that they were given. Uh, that really inspires a lot of confidence in the work that they were being asked to do. So family patriarch Julian LeBaron had, uh, has been accused of receiving funding from Nexium between 2012 and 2016 as well, which of course he denies. Curiously, or perhaps not, the fervor over the Mexican assault began to die down once rumblings of the LeBaron-Nexium alliance started to turn up in the press. Certainly, it raises a lot of unsavory possibilities, most notably the prospect teenage girls were being trafficked for use by a sex cult targeting VIPs. Now, that kind of seems like it's a reoccurring theme. It also raises further questions about the 2019 assault, which appears to have deliberately targeted LeBaron children. Was that a message directed at certain activities unfolding at Colonia LeBaron? Again, we'll never know, probably, but um, it is interesting in the context of what we've been discussing. Mitt Romney, the Mormon. We must remember that many of these sects you're talking about are Mormon sects. Okay, the Mormons. You know, I don't. I'm not here to uh, judge religion. Uh, I am here to judge reasoning, though. However, uh, the Mormons believe that blacks are from another planet, okay, somewhere in the universe. Um, well, in fairness, the Mormons also believe that God is from another planet and that uh, I yeah. believe that they're also, it's basically an ancient astronaut religion. So. Yeah, yeah. They, it, it goes back, it goes back, it, it really goes back to the cult of Mars and, and stuff like that. But Mitt Romney, when he was running for president, and I just want to bring this up in 2016, he went down to Latin America and he hit up the oligarchs. He has, he has a because of the Mormon ties from Latin America, and because of Mitt Romney's also ties to the Moody's, and the Moody's ties to Latin America, he's got a Rolodex of oligarchs. And every country in Latin America has like 10 oligarchs. In my country, Ecuador, I think there's a, a, a total of 10 oligarchs. They own everything, everything. The banks, the media, the whole thing, the whole bloody thing. It's real, real fascism, a real thing. Okay? Mitt Romney solidified not only solicited money from the brutal oligarchy for his presidential campaign and received hundreds of millions, let me tell you. He also received millions of dollars 
from two oligarchic families in El Salvador that were involved in the dirty wars and the disappearance and killing of 30,000 El Salvadorans. So I want people to understand that this stuff connects up. Yeah, no doubt. I was actually hoping you would bring that connection up with the El Salvador you know, billionaire families, because that's an Iran-Contra connection, actually. He had a, Ricardo Poma, one, a billionaire from El Salvador, was a, a big uh, investor in Bain Capital. And he also owned this company called Transal, like T-R-A-N-S-A-L uh, Corporation, which was this, like, this Miami real estate firm that uh, it turned up in the in the plane that Eugene Hassenfuss was flying when it crashed in 1986 and started the whole scandal. Uh, I think it was also receiving, I think his vice president, uh, the vice president of the company, David Reskowski, had this other company that was receiving funds from Oliver North. Uh, so there were there were definitely ties into Iran Contra from Mitt Romney's business circle, and I believe. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, ties to the death squads in El Salvador as well through these same sorts of connections. That's right. These people have to be supported. You mean, you, you, you know, Dobasson was not able to do what he did in El Salvador without the support of money. And, and pe people, the people that are not looking the other way, they're looking straight at it. They know exactly what's going on. And um, similar things are going on. I would counsel readers and their listeners to pay attention to Latin America. Uh, like I said, within a period of four weeks, there have been a five, um, well, there's, been, there's a new red tide that is coming on. And every time a new red tide happens in Latin America, there's a new Operation Condor. Every time we've already have, in my country in Ecuador, we have political um, rivals that were members of the Korea government now living in, in Mexico and in, in other countries. They've had a fleet. Uh, 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 for, uh, for imprisonment purposes. Uh, the vice president, former vice president uh, uh, under Correa is in prison. He's supposed to serve another 16 years. Uh, we know the story of Assange out of this country. I don't know if most people know that Ola, Olin Binney uh, is, is a prisoner here in Mexico, uh, in Nicaragua, uh, excuse me, Ecuador. He's a, um, a Swedish uh, a computer. Um, a person uh, that was detained two years ago in 2019, uh, just around Assange's time, and uh, he's an under house arrest. He can't leave the country here. Um, it's going to get really nasty south of the border. Uh, Mexico is going to get very nasty. The cults will continue to arise because they're in a climate of, of, of fear, a climate of death, a climate of hellscape. And Mexico is run by cartels. I mean, it's just, it, it's going to be run by cartels probably forever. The cartels work for the bank. If it wasn't for the cartels money, we probably would have crashed the U.S. economy in 2008. So there's a lot to take in and a lot of history to learn from because it doesn't have to be this way. That's the issue. It can change. And it is changing. The question and issue is how do we get the United States Imperialist Central Intelligence Agency out of the 80 countries of the world where it's currently operating and it's 800 military bases. All right. On that note, we're going to shift gears and consider one final cult before we wrap up here. It's one that some of you may have heard of before. It was headed by an individual known as Dafo Constanzo, sometimes known as the Butcher of Metamoros. Now, Constanzo is often referred to as a serial killer, but that is not very apt. 
much like Charles Manson, he was much more keen to a cult leader than what we would think of as serial killer. Now, Constanzo's actions shocked both the US and Mexico, another reoccurring theme. To wrap up, we're going to explore them a bit and focus on the parapolitics at play. So George, you're up now for the spotlight. So the first thing about Constanzo that needs to be emphasized, he's a Cuban American and not Mexican. So George, uh, give us a little bit about his background. Indeed, yeah, that is right. He, uh, and that's the funny thing you often see that, you know, even though these are operating in Mexico, you often see the origin being more, you know, Cuban or Cuban American, which was also the case with Alberto Cecilio Falcone. And so Adolfo Constanzo was, uh, he was born in 1962 to uh, Delia Aurora Gonzalez, who was, I think, only 15 at the time, which is pretty creepy and obviously raised some questions about the circumstances under which she had Adolfo as her kid in the first place, uh, you know, whether there was clearly some pedophilia involved there in one way or another. And she had just emigrated from Cuba as well. So that also, you know, starts to, and so this was right in the early 60s, right around the time when a lot of these anti-Castro Cubans were coming over following, you know, Castro's revolution, which, and of course, a lot of these people were immediately coming in and being recruited by, you know, by the intelligence services being, as uh, Danny brought up earlier, essentially being given safe housing, you know, safe passage in Miami. And that's indeed where they settled down. And throughout his early childhood, and, you know, he moved around quite a bit, you know, he had moved from, I think early in his life, he moved, his family moved to San Juan in Puerto Rico, and also would sometimes make trips to Haiti as well. And then later in his life, moved back to Miami. But basically during this time, he had this, uh, during his early childhood, he was exposed quite a bit to various occult practices, and in particular, occult practices that tended to be blends of Catholicism and more you know, traditional pagan elements that had, you know, African and or Cuban roots. So, you know, things such as Santeria and also the Haitian voodoo. Uh, you know, his mother was a fairly, you know, was a big practitioner of Santeria. You know, she would and would involve him in it. So he would be familiar with things like animal sacrifices that they would engage in. I think they often made trips to Haiti where, uh, where he would learn about their, uh, you know, their voodoo rituals as well. So he was being exposed to a lot of this occult stuff from a very early age. The other thing that's interesting about his mother beyond the occult stuff is that she seemed to have a, a pattern of escaping charge, criminal charges again and again. She would often, she would commit a lot of petty crimes and she certainly didn't leave the best environment for her son. It was considered to be relatively dilapidated, filled with, you know, like filled with blood, presumably from these sacrifices and filled with urine and feces as well so it was not a safe place to live and she herself was constantly committing you know acts of larceny and other crimes and she had I think like a rap sheet that was at least 30 items long or so and yet she was continually able to escape again and again which you know is a very common pattern you see when people are in some way protected and so the fact you know again that she came over in what appears to be this anti-Castro Cuban emigration wave and her treatment with kid gloves when she arrived in the U.S. and of course settling in the CIA hotspot for these Cubans is all very interesting for sure and start paints a potential picture of what the family background was like, especially when she begins involving him in a cult, her son in a cult stuff from an early age. So by 1976, I believe, which would be when he's uh, 14 years old, he ended up gaining a, another a mentor 
who was also like a godfather to him. And this mentor was sort of teaching him in the art of Palo Mayombe, which is another one of these sorts of occult practices that uh, uses both animal bones and human bones in some of its rituals. And so grave robbing is also a, a component of these practices as well. Constanza was learning all of that, but what he was learning was not just the Palo Mayombe practices by themselves, but he was also learning how to tie it in with the drug trade because his mentor, his godfather or padrino, as they would say, uh, he, this, uh, this mentor of his had worked very closely with drug dealers. That was how he had made so much money uh, by working closely with these individuals. And so this, uh, this padrino basically instilled the philosophy in him that he should you know, let the non-believers get high from their stupidity and that he would be able to profit off of them. So essentially blending together these occult beliefs uh, of, you know, believers versus non-believers and how you should raise yourself above these non-believers and mistreat them with the use of the drug trade as a means to do so was sort of the, what appears to be the very clearest and earliest inspiration for Adolfo Constanzo's life path going into the future. And he very much took a lot of the stuff to heart and melded it into his own sort of thing. Uh, by the mid by the mid 1980s, he had moved to uh, Mexico City. He had set up shop as a sort of as a fortune teller, and he was wooing a lot of very prominent uh, individuals in the region. You know, he had I mean, he had a great combination of you know, incredibly you know charming nature, good looks, and his reputation of being a sort of psychic, which is a cult. Uh, which is a cult practices very likely helped cement, all sort of bled together to make him a very appealing figure to the high society figures. And so this is a very clear parallel to, first of all, to Charles Manson, like you say, that Charles Manson is, I mean, is remembered as this brutal cult leader, this heartless cult leader, and yet he had this amazing ability to attract all sorts of prominent figures in Hollywood. And it's a very similar deal with Adolfo Constanzo. And what's, what's interesting, uh, you know, some of the figures who he ended up attracting uh, to himself, one of them was uh, Irma, uh, Irma Serrano, who is this uh, famous singer and actress. And also she was the mistress to a former Mexican president at one time. What's funny about that is that Irma Serrano was very similarly close to Alberto Cecilia Falcone when he was operating. And uh, I mean, Falcone in general, did a very similar, had a very similar role to Constanzo in that he, you know, pretty much, you know, he got in with a lot of high society figures in Mexico. He was, you know, able to, you know, get them to be friends with him. Ira Serrano was one of these people, and, you know, and another similarity is that uh, Falcone was, was said to be bisexual. So, you know, he could sort of attract and pull people of both, of both genders and similarly, uh, Adolfo Constanzo himself was, I mean, at least primarily seemed to be gay, but he at very least had the looks and charisma to pull in uh, women as well. So it's a very similar sort of deal with both of them that they both are these charismatic figures who have, uh, you know, Cuban, uh, Cuban or Cuban American origins who are attracting a lot of Mexican high society figures, including at least one person who was attracted to both of them at different times, and. Ultimately, you know, the high study figures that uh, Adolfo Constante was pulling in was not just celebrities, but he's also pulling in individuals from the both the law enforcement world and the organized crime world. 
some of the law enforcement people he began to pull in were some very high level individuals, which would of course serve him quite well later. Uh, he managed to pull in uh, Florentino Ventura, who was the formerly the head of the federal judicial police in, uh, in Mexico, which is like their sort of FBI equivalent. And later, uh, and after he was the head of the FJP, he ended up heading up the Mexican branch of Interpol. So, you know, from one high level assignment to, uh, to yet another. And also a Salvador Vidal Garcia Alarcón, who was the commander of the Federal Judicial Police's anti-narcotic squad with another person who fell into Constanza's orbit. So he was pretty much, you know, racking up a lot of prominent people who had the ability to completely control these, uh, any investigation into the drug trade. And so that's the, the fact that he was able to do that sort of cements his idea of this charismatic cult leader was able to recruit people and get them to bend to his will, even if they were supposed to be the ones who would uh, stand in the way of, you know, of criminal activity. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting too. Um, Odo Scorzini was also known, I mean, Danny had already gotten into this a little bit earlier with Eva Perone, but uh, he was also known to have uh, seduced a, uh, a number of high society uh, ladies in his day. Uh, so yeah, that also, seems to be a bit of a reoccurring uh, theme with some of these uh, more mercenary figures who had to do a lot of the dirty work. Uh, I guess some of it uh, wasn't necessarily as dirty as some of the other uh, aspects of it. Though then again, I, uh, I think some people might have considered sleeping with Eva Ferrone a bit of a task, but you know, that's neither here nor there. Uh, another interesting point I wanted to make too about uh, Constanzo's time in uh, Miami towards the late 1970s. Uh, recently, there was a book uh, published called The Rights of the Mummy that was co-authored by uh, Jeffrey Evans and Peter Lavenda that's uh, mostly centered around uh, Evans' time working with an occult group in the Miami area. Uh, Evans uh, was a disciple of Kenneth Grant of the OTO, but uh, or I should say the Typhonian OTO rather to be specific, to be exact. But um, he had a lot of a lot of interesting connections uh, prior to really getting into the whole uh, filmic current, this Evans character. Uh, in 1964, he was initiated into what Lavenda describes as a Lutheran branch of the Order of St. John. Uh, this would have been, you know, around the uh, the DC area of Northern Virginia. So it's really not that far from the Shikshini uh, region where the uh, really infamous uh, Shikshini Knights of Malta resided, probably the, uh, the granddaddy of a lot of these uh, sovereign orders of St. John's uh, that proliferate in the general area. So Evans had ties to at least one of these offshoots. Uh, I'm still trying to dig up and see like what the lineage of this outfit is, but that's interesting. But more to the point here, by about 1970, Mr. Evans uh, became involved with members of the Finders, uh, which our friend John Brisson has done quite a bit about. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are aware of the Finders and the allegations surrounding them trafficking kids. Uh, in 1987, members were uh, stopped in Tallahassee, Florida with uh, several disabled kids in the uh, back of their uh, van. Uh, the kids uh, actually said that they were on their way to a, a special school in Mexico. Uh, we hear a lot about special schools in Mexico in general, but uh, it's interesting that the finders also reportedly had uh, some kind of links to that. 
So not to get too sidetracked, but this Jeffrey Evans character was also involved uh, in all of these occult circles in uh, Miami during the late 1970s. And specifically, he had actually set out training in Santorina from one of the most prominent Padrinos in the area at the time. So I'm uh, very curious to see if uh, it might have been somebody that Constanzo had trained with. I have not been able to confirm any of that yet i'm still digging but uh it is intriguing that you have a guy with finders connections also active there and then constanzo ends up in mexico not long afterwards absolutely worth looking into especially because i don't think the identity of uh, constanzo's godfather has actually come out or it's very obscure if it has so it's this may well be a lead that goes to that direction Okay, so let's get into the Gulf Cartel for a moment. Uh, this was the other major drug cartel in Mexico at the time, next to the Guadalajara one. Uh, so give us a bit of a background on the Gulf Cartel and Constanzo, uh, how Con- Constanzo came into contact with a, uh, with a George. Yeah, of course. And just you know, to sort of, I guess, springboard off of what Danny was saying, it is that the state of affairs you see in Mexico, and I mean, with all, with the such a massive cartel presence kind of i mean almost my my sort of estimation of it has always been you know mexico is almost like this you know this less well-regulated world where you know all of these dirty operations that the u.s intelligence services want to happen but can't quite get away with here because it would require so much corruption of law enforcement and the judicial process is able to take place in mexico so a lot of these the dirtiest parts of these operations are just shunted over in New Mexico to occur instead with virtual impunity. And that's been the trend going back quite a while. And the Gulf Cartel in particular uh, is very old, actually. It started in the 1930s during the time when prohibition was still going on. So actually one of their initial uh, things they were doing was uh, smuggling alcohol often across the border. So they were very much influenced by the organized crime presence that was in the US at the time as well. Uh, of course, you know, that's that was heavily based in Chicago, for instance. Uh, that was where a lot of the prohibition, you know, the U.S.-based organized crime for prohibition was happening. So you see a potential Chicago connection right there almost immediately. And the founder was a man by the name of Juan Guerra. Uh, that's G-U-E-R-R-A. Sorry, I can't roll my R's in pronouncing it. But um, basically after prohibition ended, you know, the, the Gulf cartel began brand- and they were initially known as the Matamoros cartel, actually. They were based in the city of Matamoros. They started branching off uh, as the decades rolled on into other types of organized crime operations, you know, starting gambling houses. They were involved in human trafficking operations, you know, you know forcing people into prostitution, running prostitution networks. They were involved in car theft, of all things, which is very interesting given what you, Recluse, talked about earlier with what the some of these Mormon sects were up to. So it's interesting to see a correspondence there between what the cartels were doing and what these Mormon groups were doing. And also just straight up, you know, smuggling, uh, drug, different types of drug smuggling. And uh, a very important figure we see in the Gulf Cartel uh, who, who ends up ascending to the leadership of the Gulf Cartel was Juan Guerra's nephew, uh, Juan Garcia Abrego. That is A-B-R-E-G-O. And uh, Juan Garcia Abrego uh, sort of got inducted into it at a young age, starting out with car theft. That was sort of his initial thing that he did with some other friends of his, you know, stealing cars, shipping them across the border. And ultimately, as time wound on, he started to uh, eventually started to become more and more influential, more and more important to network in other ways. He was relatively instrumental in, you know, he was involved in marijuana trafficking, 
uh, to places like Miami around the late 70s. And then he actually started making deals with the Colombian cartel, made a deal with the, the Cali cartel uh, to start being sort of their, their middleman for shipping cocaine, that they would, they would take the cocaine from Colombia and then they would be the ones to move it across the border into the United States. And of course, the Cali cartel is an interesting one because, you know, contrary to a lot of popular belief, uh, the infamous figure Barry Seal, Barry Seal, the CIA drug trafficker, and I should note Barry Seal was sort of brought up under the tutelage of none other than David Ferry, who was also uh, Lee Harvey, one of Lee Harvey Oswald's initial intelligence intelligent handlers. But Barry Seal, who had a very long record of drug smuggling and other types of smuggling and pilot operations for the CIA, Barry Seal was murdered in 1986 uh, by what was presumed to be the Medellin cartel, but was actually, according to the work of Daniel Hopsicker, who did a whole biography on Barry Seal, was actually the Cali cartel and the Cali cartel receiving instructions from Oliver North, of all people, instructing them what to do. So it's interesting to see that sort of arrangement, the Gulf cartel make entering into an arrangement with the Cali cartel and Juan Garcia Abrego being the key point man of doing it. Now, you know, you, you, you bring something up that's very, very important, and that is that Oliver North actually ordered, if it wasn't for Oliver North, Barry Seal would never have been killed. Because what, 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 what happened is that Barry Seal was, worked for the Central Intelligence Agency as well. And he was told to put a camera into the cone of his airplane and to fly it to Nicaragua to pick up cocaine. And the, the, for what it shows on the film, uh, that Frederico Vaughn, who was evidently a member of the Sandinista government, is loading cocaine onto the plane. Well, uh, uh, Oliver North gets this information, and without any regard for his informant, okay, he immediately puts this out to the press, and the and the and the, and the cartels know immediately that it came from Barry Seal and that he's working for the CIA, and they're the ones that put out the. They, they hit to kill him, and it wouldn't have happened had it not been for all of them. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, honestly, I mean, Barry Seal just joins a long line of these people who, you know, they they get brought up in this intelligence service, you know, network. They devote their lives to it for a while, but as soon as you know, they end up pretty much getting sacrificed by their superiors, and then just get on the receiving end of a bullet or some other gruesome death in the end, and. Uh, well, you know, the gold, the, gold, the gold colored cartel, which you mentioned, uh, it, yes, Chicago was, you know, the, 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 the point of action for the, the, the National Crime Syndicate, not for the five families, but for the National Crime Syndicate. But a lot of what the gold cartel was bringing in was for Carlos Marcello in Louisiana. And um, because he and Santo Traficante were a, a, a drug distribution point. A trafficante more than Marcelo, but they were bringing uh, stuff into Marcelo. Um, at, at the same time, um, uh, and so there's an organized crime connection, of course, uh, that's there. And again, this is a result of moving the um, the dealing uh, to the anti-Castro Cubans uh, and taking the business away from the Corsicans and Burma and moving it to Latin America. Yeah, and it is interesting you bring that up, you know, Santo Traficante in Miami, Carlos Marcello, you know, in Louisiana, you see, you seem to see these three states, you know, Texas, Florida, Louisiana seem to keep turning up as the hotspots of these drug operations, you know, all on the Gulf of Mexico, all seem to have these anti-Castro Cuban presences, 
all were incidentally three of what I would argue are the key states for a lot of the Kennedy assassination plotting that was going on. So yeah, it's very, very important to single out those states as being incredibly crucial. And then again, with the Chicago connection in mind, you of course had Jack Ruby uh, you know, relocating from Chicago into Dallas, one of these hotspots, and Jack Ruby himself being involved in uh, arms trafficking into Cuba. He make making trips to New Orleans uh, to network with anti-Castro groups there. So it is absolutely the same sort of this criminal network has a couple of these key hotspots and absolutely cannot leave out Louisiana and Marcella's presence there as well. And I mean, also with Chicago too, I mean, you have to kind of remember, I mean, that was like ground zero for uh, a lot of the post, you know, Cold War era far right uh, political ideology. I mean, the American Security Council was based out of Chicago for years. It's where the uh, University of Chicago uh, housing, of course, Milton Friedman and the whole school of Chicago economics, you know, and that type of thing. Uh, so, I mean, it was a lot of the the intellexia as well as uh you know some of this other more nefarious stuff that was going on with some of these connections the we, university of chicago was also big in funding the institute for american strategy which was kind of the psychological you know warfare bureau essentially for the asc and a lot of these other groups along with um uh, what was it northwestern university that's also based in chicago area and another one that you see a lot of these types coming from um but yeah, the Chicago academic areas, I mean, a lot of these schools were huge and a lot of this kind of stuff. But like, so the Gulf cartel, though, let's get back here. So, uh, yeah, so uh, basically, you know, like I was mentioning, uh, you know, the Gulf cartel was sort of getting, especially in the 70s and 80s, was getting into the drug trade with, you know, marijuana and then cocaine. And uh, it was, I mean, it was a pretty substantial operation. There are many sort of sub groups of it that you could identify that had carved out particular turfs, you know, for example, the, uh, and one particular one that's worth remembering because this will come up quite a bit with Constanzo is the Hernandez family. And the Hernandez family was based directly in Matamoros. They were sort of reputed to be powerful enough that they kind of owned the city of Matamoros in a way, just, you know, through their influence over the drug trade. And uh, for example, one instance of this you can see is a man by the name of uh, Saul Hernandez Rivera was one of like 16 people who was charged along with Juan Garcia Abrego in some stolen car indictment that they received in Texas, you know, when they were going across the border. Now this indictment was not really pursued that much. I mean, they, it's hard, it's hard. I mean, it can happen as we saw it happen with the LeBarons, but extraditing people from, you know, from Mexico, especially for something that was as, you know, just like a stolen car, that's not necessarily something that you're going to see happening easily. So the indictment was there but didn't really do much. Uh, although interestingly enough, there was a time when Abrego had actually crossed the border and I think gone into custody for a brief time, but then they just let him go despite this pending indictment that had never been carried out before. So he was very likely being treated with some kid gloves when he came into the US as well. But anyway, with, with regards to the Hernandez family, they were, you know, they were in, they were involved in what the Gulf Cartel was doing in the city of Montemoros, and they were powerful for quite some time. But were eventually it would seem starting to lose, uh, they were starting to lose some influence. But then in January of 1987, an interesting thing happens. Uh, Saul Hernandez is in front, basically is at this bar in Matamoros called Piedras Negras. And he is murdered, he's just murdered uh, in what very much appears to be this cartel assassination. And uh, around, this, around the same time also happening in, in 1987, you know, Constanzo is, 
he's sort of flexing his connections that he's made with uh, these different, you know, with these figures through his, uh, in Mexico City, people who are politically powerful in law enforcement, those who might have ties to the, uh, to the cartels. And I believe Florentino Ventura, the, the guy who was the head of the uh, federal judicial police and then Interpol made an introduction between Constanzo and uh, one of these families, the Calzada family. And Constanzo tried to get in with this family, but they didn't want him to, you know, they were willing to pay for his services, his like fortune telling services, but then he wanted to become directly involved in their business and they didn't let him do that. And then not that long after that, all of them ended up turning up, uh, all of them ended up turning up dead and would later be found victims of these satanic sacrifices on Constanzo's ranch. You know, at this point, he had collected a number of cultists, people who would follow his every word, do his bidding, and you know, commit these acts of violence. And so the Calzadas were one of these uh, first sort of victims, it would seem, of his cult violence. But then after that, he ended up just, you know, supposedly just conveniently showed up in Matamoros not long after the murder of Saul Hernandez and just offered to help the family uh, make the critical drug connections they needed to sort of get back in the game and regain their influence if they joined up with him. He was sort of, he advertised himself and his occult powers as being able to give them, give them power and give them invulnerability and essentially like give them everything they needed to become, become super successful in this drug world again. And so the remaining members of the Hernandez family who you know, it would seem they were very much spooked out by what had happened to Saul. And so you know, his brother, Elio Hernandez, the other brother, Serafin Hernandez Rivera, uh, Elio's nephew, Serafin Hernandez Garcia, and then also uh, Brijito Hernandez, who was the owner of a ranch in Matamoros. They would become the main cult ranch where Adolfo Constanzo and all of his cultists stayed and buried their victims, uh, this ranch known as Rancho Santo. Rancho Santa Elena, all these people, all these members of the Hernandez family sort of ended up being taken under Constanzo's wing. And of course, it's not really proven about how all this went down, but I do find it relatively convenient that Saul is murdered. And there's a lot of speculation, a lot of belief that Juan Garcia Abrego had something to do with that. And then for Constanzo to more or less swoop in right afterwards and then show up and have the entire rest of the Hernandez family follow onto him and join up with him is very convenient timing to me. And also the fact that this other family who he dealt with previously, uh, also in the same year that uh, Saul was murdered, he's dealing with this other family who ends up all ends up all being murdered. And by the way, there are some, there were some intimations that this family, this Calzada family was about to expose police corruption, drug trade as well. So there may have been an additional motive for why they were cleaned up. But the fact that Constanzo pretty much swoops in at the perfect time to start consolidating influence among these people in the Gulf Cartel and in Matamar specifically is very interesting to me and does point to, you know, sort of maneuvering behind the scenes to sort of reshape the, uh, reshape the architecture of this cartel and Constanzo playing a key role in consolidating it all together. Very interesting. What was very the time frame for this again, George? Uh, it is so. It basically it's like 1987, like early 1987, okay, when okay. Saul Hernandez is murdered. I believe the Calzada murders happen around this time, and so by by now, Constanzo has already been building up cult members of his. But then, I think either later that year or in the next year, in 1988, he ends up really making his deal with the Hernandez family. And then after making the deal, they pretty much are a joint venture. You know, they're his cult 
ends up being involved in mm -hmm. drug trafficking. They're transporting drugs. They're stashing drugs at their compound. They're also going up against uh, people who are potential rivals or people who might expose their operation. You know, ultimately, when Constanza's ranch was exposed, there were a lot of very obvious cartel contract murder victims. You know, I think there were some informants that turned up dead on the ranch. There were some federal narcotics officers who turned up on the ranch, some cops who turned up dead on the ranch, someone who was involved in a cocaine lab turned up dead on the ranch. So ultimately what you see here is, you know, again, a blending of this cult group, which, uh, you know, they believe that this would make them, you know, invincible to all their enemies. This cult group pretty much becomes a contract murder outfit for the Hernandez family, which is operating on behalf of the uh, which is just a part of the, an important part of the Gulf cartel. That's what the Matamoros cult ultimately seems to be turned into. And it's obviously it's not always easy to see who's pulling the strings here, whether you know it's, it's Adol whether Adolfo Constanzo is potentially acting on behalf of Abreco to help him sort of you know build up a, a new base of support and how the how the Gulf cartel is functioning, and whether you know these people like Florentino Ventura, whether they're cult members of his, whether they're working for. Constanzo, whether they're actually potentially manipulating him and being his real handler. You know, if you want to parallel the Manson family, people like Tex Watson were ostensibly members of the Manson family, but it really seems like Tex Watson was a key figure in pulling the strings of Manson and doing a lot of the real dirty work. And we could see a similar arrangement with people like Florentino Ventura as well. But it is ultimately, it's very interesting to see how Constanzo pretty much warms his way into this situation and he essentially becomes a leader of this contract murder outfit that is enabling this cartel to be very successful in its operations for a number of years. Yeah, it's well, it's interesting with the timing too, because I think 87, 88 was like around the time that uh, the Mexican government uh, finally, you know, started to get serious about cracking down on the Guadalajara cartel, I should say serious in quotations, but uh, there was a bit of a pushback to it, which had led to some of the figures uh, eventually being arrested towards the end of the decade and, uh, you know, some new blood being brought into management there as well. So, yeah, and I think this was also like around the time that the Medellin cartel was being kind of pushed out by the Cali cartel for control of a lot of the... Uh, uh, the Columbia, you know, for the uh, cocaine trade. So, I mean, it seems like uh, there was generally a, uh, a reordering or a reshuffling of the deck going on towards this whole sort of time frame in the late 1980s. Stanzo's ties to the Chicago mob. Sure, yeah. I mean, that was the, one of the more interesting things to come out of all of the, uh, you know, all the reports that were going on, you know, when the Monomore's cold story first broke. Uh, the, it was, you know, initially just viewed as this Mexican entity, but then the investigation quickly led to uh, Chicago is, and Chicago mob bosses being kind of the real power behind it. Uh, and so basically, you know, the cult in Matamoros was very strongly involved in drug trafficking, as I mentioned, which is not surprising because they were basically a functionary of the Gulf cartel. And it turns out ultimately that they have been trafficking thousands of pounds of cocaine and marijuana into across the border to ultimately go to Chicago crime bosses. It was ultimately on their behalf. The Hernandez family was associated with a man named uh, Manuel Jaramillo, J-A-R-A-M-I-L-L-O, who was kind of, I mean, kind of funny, kind of like Jack Ruby, a former Chicago resident who had ended up relocating down to Texas to better supervise the operations that were going on there. And uh, Jaramillo, was a close associate of Albert Caesar Taco, who was a, a Chicago mob leader 
and was a member of the Accardo crime family. That, of course, calls to mind Tony Accardo, who was a well-known enforcer of the Chicago crime syndicate for a while. And you see that connection come up in other places. John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer, once claimed to be related to the Accardos and claimed to be part of the syndicate. Uh, Kenneth McKenna, aka Mad Dog McKenna, who was a self-proclaimed hand of death cult uh, operative, he also said that he did he said that he did assassinations and did jobs for Tony Accardo, that he supposedly knew Accardo. So you see some very, you know, you see ties to the top of the Chicago syndicate with the, through this uh, cult. And you also see potential ties that the syndicate has in other ways to satanic cults once again. So it sort of goes round and round with this whole correspondence here. But yeah, you know, ultimately you see off, you see that the connections, you know, you see weird Satanism at the bottom level, but then it gets really mundane at the top. You follow the trail high up and up and it's literally just organized crime or it's just the intelligence services. It's uh, a lot of the times the Satanism, these people are the functionaries for, uh, for what is ultimately, you know, money is the real driver here. It's just, you know, manifest in very odd and appalling ways at the very bottom of the food chain. All right, so, all right, let's get into a Mark Kilroy murder. It's a bizarre incident that bears uh, some similarities to the Camarina incident. So what's your take on that, George? Yeah, I would have to say that, you know, although it's hard to prove anything definitive, I do have my suspicions about whether it was exactly as is presented to, uh, you know, presented officially, you know, supposedly it was just Mark Kilroy was a student at uh, University of Texas in Austin, and he was, he had finished all his exams, so he was going on, I presume, a spring break trip down to Mexico to have fun with his friends, like going to bars and all that, and then supposedly the uh, the cultists in in Matamoros, they wanted an American for one of their rituals, one of their dismemberment rituals. So they ended up targeting uh, Mark Kilroy and you know ab abducting him. You know they had sent some cultists to abduct him, and he actually had been able to fight off the first, like the first sort of van of people that was trying to get him. But then another you know, another group had come back and you know grabbed him again. So he unfortunately became a victim of the cult. And this, of course, set off a firestorm in the U.S. because beforehand it was just, you know, it was just cartel people or, you know, just people down in Mexico who no one cared about who were being killed. But now suddenly it's, a, you know, it's this American man. And now every, and now, of course, everyone in the U.S. is on high alert and wants, wants I mean, understandably wants justice for what happened to Mark Kilroy. But what's, uh, what's curious about it and about him and what's very rarely brought up in any of this coverage is that Mark Kilroy was a, ne was a nephew of a U.S. customs agent named Ken Kilroy. And Ken Kilroy, was, he was based in Los Angeles. He was involved in interdiction operations. You know, by the time that he, I think uh, there's an article from a couple of years later after Mark Kilroy's murder, which happened in 1989. It's from some political campaign that Ken Kilroy was running in Seattle in the 90s. And at that point, he was apparently listed as like the assistant, like special agent in charge of whatever operation he was in. So clearly, Ken Kilroy was relatively, seemed to be relatively high up in whatever he was doing. And interdiction was part of it. He was in Los Angeles, so reasonably close to the border with Mexico and likely connected to some of those operations. So it does absolutely raise my suspicion you know, that just as you see Camarena's DEA agent becoming a target, you see a nephew of a uh, important customs agent becoming a target because that's often been a tactic of 
organized crime and the cartels especially. You know, if you can't go after the people directly, you start going after their families instead and you retaliate that way. And I absolutely do have my suspicions that that is what happened with, uh, with Mark Kilroy, even though it's hard to prove. I think there is surprisingly little speculation on, you know, whether the, you know, on whether this was a targeted hit instead of a random murder. That seems to be the pattern, honestly, with uh, many of these, many of these killings that, uh, you know, whether we're talking about serial killings or organized crime killings, you know, that it's often passed off as a random thing, you know, or, or same with cult killings, you know, they pass it off as a random act of violence, but then you see that the victims have these strange connections that make it likely that they were targeted for a particular reason, and that just never gets explored. Often having it done through a cult, which is sort of set up as a, this crazy, you know, unmotivated group, it's just these wild people who want to kill indiscriminately and there's nothing else there. It often is a way of preemptively shutting down any inquiry into whether there were more specific motives. And of course, you know, just getting back to DFS stuff for a second, it is interesting that uh, Tomas Morlet Borquez, who was a former DFS agent and was a prime suspect in the uh, in the murder of Camarena, he, you know, after he left the DFS, began working closely with the Hernandez family. And then he was actually murdered alongside Saul Hernandez in 1987 in the incident that I mentioned before. So you do see some DFS presence and you see a, po a possible connection between the people who killed uh, Camarena and the people who killed Mark Kilroy, quite possibly. So that's another sort of interesting tie and you see that the same so the criminals are quite possibly behind both of these tragic murders. It was also interesting too, because it kind of became like a quasi, uh, you know, international incident, or at least an incident with the United States because of Kilroy being uh, targeted. I mean, you know, since there's almost maybe shades a bit of uh, uh, the incident involving the LeBaron family in 2019, you know, good, uh, 20 or so years later. Uh, so that's also uh, kind of an interesting component of it as well, or 30 years later, I think. But yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, also in this whole time frame as well, uh, when it does seem like a lot of these loose ends were like being wrapped up. Uh, another point too I wanted to make with the whole connection to Chicago was the fact that um, uh, one of Ervo LeBaron's uh, wives, uh, Johnson, what was it, Maria Johnson, I think, uh, Linda Johnson, she was picked up uh, in Chicago and uh, she had been, uh, after Ervo had uh, been arrested and later died in prison, had been working with Heber LeBaron uh, throughout this whole time frame in Mexico, uh, you know, when he was involved with the cartel or, you know, in the, uh, on the car smuggling ring and all this other stuff. And then after he had been apprehended, she had ended up in the Chicago area hiding out from authorities as well. And this would have been again on that whole, you know, 88, 89 time frame. So that is funny. Yeah. Sorry. One thing I wanted to bring up that I actually forgotten until you just brought up and reminded me that also Adolfo Constanzo was by some accounts, it's possible that he actually, you know, he's officially ended up being killed in the shootout with the Mexican federal police after the whole thing was exposed. But there were witness accounts, first of all, of some unidentified figures fleeing the scene of the shootout. There were rumors that Adolfo Constanzo had, you know, substituted someone else to you know, basically pretend to be him and have that body be identified as him. And then there were actually witness sightings of him in Chicago around the same time. So, yeah, no, I thought there had been rumors that it, some of his other associates too had fled to Chicago or something like that as well. That, that would not surprise me at all. Uh, 
because yeah, I mean, that seems to be where the ultimate core of the operation was happening. And now you see that, um, and you know, to see have rumors that they show up there of all places. I mean, if they're going to be witness accounts of him, why would it happen to be in the same city where his bosses ultimately come from? That seems a bit odd to be any, you know, to just be a random, you know, mistaken identities. So very, I mean, very Linda Ray, you know, I mean, Johnson ending up because they're, I mean, Scott Anderson speculated in uh, the four o'clock murders that she might have actually been the one that was running um, Heber LeBaron's ring and not Heber himself. So that's kind of another interesting uh, aspect of this as well. She ends up also in Chicago around the same time frame and, uh, right. you know, didn't end up going anywhere near, I think, the kind of time that Heber did. Uh, yeah, it, it is interesting for sure. You know, when you see all these correspondences between this, you know, this figures who were involved in the same dealings in the first place, you know, calls to mind the quote that was in Jim Garrison's book, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, you know, when you see all these figures drawn together to the same place, almost as if there's a magnetic field pulling them all together, it starts to suggest that there is a conspiracy afoot, you know, that when coincidence piles on coincidence too many times, and all these people are constantly lining up with each other in terms of circumstances, you have something more on your hands than just a bunch of random occurrences. All right, George, to wrap up, I had you on at uh, the beginning of the year to discuss a code you had uncovered while researching the John Binet Ramsey murder. It was called White Eagle, and it appeared to be fascistic military-based cult with a strong presence in Mexico. Can you go over that a bit for us and uh, how it ties in potentially into the network we've been describing in this installment? Yeah, absolutely. The, the White Eagle Underground is, uh, as you say, the sort of this underground cult organization that has been rumored in a couple, you know, accounts by accounts by victims, uh, you know, child victims, victims of pedophilia, and uh, also it caught up in the course of some investigations into domestic terror in the U.S. Not very well known outside of what we've talked about on this podcast, but seems to be very influential and ties together a lot of otherwise seemingly disparate elements of these different, you know, domestic terror and uh, underground fascist groups. And basically it is this cult organization with a strong presence in the Southwestern U.S. and the Western U.S. So places like Texas, Oklahoma, Colorado, uh, I'd say would be pr pretty big ones. Also Louisiana is pretty important to this cult. And basically uh, they're involved in all sorts of uh, strange dealings such as, uh, I mean, they're involved in a lot of organized crime enterprises that would include drug trafficking, weapon smuggling, human trafficking, including child trafficking, and then also involved uh, on the flip side in domestic terror and, you know, plotting to actually, you know, attack major cities and, you know, and military bases in the U.S. So they have, they're involved in organized crime rather heavily, but they also have a rather strong bent that is both, you know, fascist, you know, overtly Nazi, and also a satanic element in that they seem to practice satanic rituals along the lines of what you would hear about in some of these other pedophile ring cases, you know, ultimately, you know, absolutely horrendous abuse and sadistic abuse of children, you know, these, these human sacrifice rituals, you know, torture and mutilation, all those sorts of things are all as one in this cult. And Describing how it's uh, organized, it's at a high level, it is run by uh, run by so-called rogue, you know, quote unquote rogue military and CIA officers. Uh, you know, obviously they, they're always said to be rogue when they're doing something that the U.S. government doesn't want to be embarrassed by. But at the high level, 
its members of the CIA and also the army and the Air Force are said to be the leadership of this cult, what's sort of known as the Star Chamber, that's the name for the leadership. But then at a ground level, in terms of actual field operatives, they use a, a sort of hodgepodge of, of strange figures. They use white supremacists, they use uh, members of the Mexican mafia, they use foreign terrorists from other countries like the Middle East and Germany and Russia to sort of do the field level work for them, whether it involved, you know, to do the trafficking of children, to move the drugs, to commit these terror acts on the ground. Basically that's so, so it's sort of a, uh, kind of like almost a private military, paramilitary enterprise in a way that has Nazi beliefs and also has uh, overt occult beliefs. You know, the way that it sort of came out was um, basically the NYPD was investigating domestic terror threats that they were receiving from a white supremacist group based in Houston. And in the course of investigating this, the, this you know, sort of consultant to them ended up coming across the White Eagle Underground and then ended up coming across multiple instances of abused children in the Houston area who were basically describing this cult to them. One of them was a, a kid named Nick Schultz, who was the son of a man named Paul Schultz. Paul Schultz was a reputed mafia hitman and was abusing his son in absolutely horrible ways. He was, I mean, you know, directly sexually abusing his son because he was a pedophile, but he was also bringing his son to cult meetings and, you know, allowing his son to be you know, mutilated by animals and insects and uh, also, you know, doing these rituals in front of his son, have, letting other adults abuse his son. And he was also involved in, you know, various Nazi sort of uh, ceremonies involving his son. You know, he was talking about how his son was supposedly descended of a pure German bloodline. And so that would be, that would enable him to be groomed for leadership. And so there was at one point this like bizarre celebration of his son. There was these people would dress up in Nazi sort of regalia sometimes. So this was a very sick bunch all around that clearly had fascist leanings and also practitioners of Satanism. Uh, but ultimately, you know, in terms of what this cult was doing, you know, there were, uh, there were very clear connections to organized crime, specifically in Mexico, because a lot of the stuff was happening not too far from Mexico. One of the important members of the cult, along with Paul Schultz, was a a uh, figure by the name of Tenorio Luga. I have not been able to identify this person outside of the dossier that I received about this, so it's possible it's a fake name or the name is spelled in a weird way. But you know, this person, Tenorio Luga, was uh, both a was according to the dossier was both a Mexican mafia asset, also worked for the Central Intelligence Agency, also was some sort of informant for the ATF bureau, and uh, Tenorio Luga was said to maintain these sort of safe houses near the Mexican border where trafficked children would be brought to and held captive. So there's some absolutely horrible stuff like that going on. There are mentions of cocaine being moved across the border being part of this as well. Mentions of Nick Schultz being traded to pedophiles for cocaine or vice versa. So there was a lot, basically this is, uh, this network here is very strongly involved in all manner of organized crime activity that the cartels and other similar groups seem to be involved in, in fact, is directly tying in with the Mexican mafia. And you, you see other instances of, of them doing things, according to Nick Schultz's account, that very strongly point this group as functionaries of organized crime, similar to what the Montemoros cult was doing. Aside from the drug importation, there are accounts of them you know, shooting at ships in the Galveston Bay. 
There are, the, there are accounts of them murdering at least one police officer, which again is very similar to what the Matamoros group was doing. They had, you know, they had at least one federal agent buried on their property. So that's similar to what this cult was doing. Members of you know, human sacrifice and dismemberment, which is just what the Matamoros group is doing too. And of course the trafficking of, of children. Uh, so this group sounds very similar to what Matamoros was, the Matamoros group under Constanza was doing. It also sounds very similar to the so-called hand of death cult that uh, serial killer Henry Lee Lucas and also his partner Otis Toole talked about in their accounts after they were arrested. And as, as has been mentioned in a couple places like in Karo Rashi's book, Painted Black, uh, Henry Lee Lucas actually identified the uh, something that was a cult operation in Matamoros years before Constanzo's group was exposed. So that does point to some foreknowledge of this sort of thing happening that validates Henry Lee Lucas really knowing about a cult. And so it is interesting, and especially when you delve into the hand of death too, there are other mentions that scream CIA involvement. You know, in, in FBI documents that interviewed Henry Lee Lucas, he talked about how the uh, the death squads uh, in Miami were uh, were sort of were basically a hand of were in were hand of death cult run basically. And even similarly, he described being trained at a paramilitary camp in the Everglades, uh, which which there were paramilitary camps in the Everglades at the same time. They were being run by the CIA and used to train anti-Castro Cuban forces and also you know, train the Contras. So there are very uh, clear indicators in the Hand of Death story pointing to CIA involvement and the Hand of Death story and the fact that Lucas knew about what was going on in Matamora seems to validate that there is a commonality with the, what Constantin's group is doing because the Hand of Death was said to be involved in some of the exact same activities. They were involved in trafficking children across the border. Uh, they were also involved in uh, dealing with stolen cars before Henry Lucas was recruited into the uh, before he was recruited into the the murder for hire side of the cult, which uh, you know he was the main thing he claimed to have done. He said that his uh, his cult recruiter, a man who was given the name Don Metric, that last name is spelled M-E-T-E-R-I-C, although that might be a fake name as well. He basically said his cult recruiter, Don Metric, offered him a job driving stolen cars across the country. And Henry Lee Lucas believed there was an organized crime element to it, which almost certainly was correct. But the mention of stolen cars being used in this enterprise uh, is very similar, of course, to what the Gulf Cartel was doing, very similar to what the LeBarons were doing. And so once again, we just see again and again the hand of death cult, the satanic group that was a murder for hire and, and drug trafficking and child trafficking group with strong ties to Mexico is similar to what the Montemoros group was doing. That's similar to what the Gulf Cartel is doing. And that's all lines up with what the uh, White Eagle Underground is doing by the accounts of these victims. And uh, what becomes very interesting and really sort of ties the whole thing together, arguably, are a couple things that are mentioned near the end of the dossier that I received on the White Eagle Underground. So first of all, uh, it, the White Eagle Underground dossier mentioned at one point how several crime families in Latin America were involved in uh, were involved at being important financiers of the group. And in terms of what happened in Mexico, it specifically mentions the uh, Longoria, Longoria family of uh, Guadalajara being financial backers. And this family was an influential business family. They owned a lot of factories at the Mexican border, including some in Matamoros. They had family roots in the city of Matamoros of all places. And one of the members of the family uh, Julio Cesar uh, Longoria was actually the successor of Juan Garcia Abrego in the uh, in the Gulf Cartel after uh, 
later on. So that that is one pretty clear indicator that the Gulf cartel uh, that you know tying the White Eagle Underground to the Gulf cartel in terms of what the dossier is saying. The White Eagle Underground also mentions the Oklahoma City bombing being one of many domestic terror in incidents that the uh, that the White Eagle Underground was supposedly behind or suspected of being behind. And there is a very interesting account by a former Tulsa, Oklahoma police officer named Craig Roberts, who did an investigation of the Oklahoma City bombing. And he ended up receiving a tip that some of the money for the bombing actually came from Juan Garcia Abrego, that this Gulf cartel this Gulf cartel crime lord had actually supplied some of the money to be used in the Oklahoma City bombing, which of course mainly seems to have been an operation involving fascist elements, both in the US, white supremacists at Elaheim City, but also involving people like Andreas uh, Strassmeyer, who came over from Germany and seemed to have CIA affiliations of their own. And then of course, uh, there are also rumors, by the way, that the Elaheim City group had done some, uh, had basically been neo-Nazi hitmen on behalf of Sammy Gravano, a important uh, second in command of the Gambino family here in the US. And Sammy Gravano had indeed had a, a neo-Nazi group called the Devil Dogs, which was used as enforcers for him. And he himself, Sammy Gravano also had a background in uh, being, you know, I think he had a trainer who, ha he had a trainer with a hypnotist. I think he had a military background too. So again, you know, intelligence, is very much in the background of all of these things. And the White Eagle Underground and the Gulf Cartel activity and the Hand of Death all seem to line up very strongly with each other. Well, I think too, to kind of <clears throat> bring, I mean, a lot of this ultimately together that you have to sort of look at is the role that the stay behind networks have played in all of this. I mean, fundamentally, uh, you know, kind of going back to like what we were talking about earlier, I mean, Le Cirque How really seems to have been created initially at least to manage a lot of the stay behinds that were present in Western Europe. And as we had uh, detailed earlier, I mean, obviously a lot of these groups are deeply implicated in acts of terrorism and arms trafficking and drug trafficking. And obviously, I mean, a lot of this, you know, weird sex trafficking stuff often involving minors. Uh, a lot of these groups were also fundamentally connected to the Condor states and so forth. Uh, but also, I mean, if Kyle Burke is correct in Revolutionaries the Right, uh, a lot of this was being driven by Los Tecos out of Mexico and the CAL and this kind of Bronner Wackel network uh, that was used to construct Condor and give it this sort of international range. So we sort of again see the, uh, the significance of Mexico, I think, in a lot of this. And then I think when you're sort of bringing this into perspective with the White Eagle Underground, you know, I mean, I think... Uh, what is fundamentally being described there is probably a component uh, of the American stay behind. I mean, of course, uh, you know, we've long speculated and some of the group of researchers that I work with that I mean, the uh, sovereign order of St. John is potentially a kind of uh, American version of propaganda Dewey. And uh, certainly, you know, we've seen indications that the White Eagle and uh, the sovereign order of St. John are connected from documents uh, that we got from the papers of uh, Congressman Larry McDonald. So, uh, you know, this is a very uh, incestuous network. And I mean, you know, some of these orders of St. John uh, that we looked at from these documents from Larry McDonald. I mean, some of the other guys involved were people like General John Sinklob, uh, key players in Iran-Contra and a lot of these other incidences that we've been talking about. So, I mean, there is, I think, a fundamental component of this with this White Eagle thing. And I think fundamentally what it's like laying out 
is this international paramilitary network uh, that has been used to really perpetuate, I think, this fascist takeover that we're trying to outline in all of this for decades now. Uh, it may not have been, you know, certainly I don't think it was at least intended as that in the early days, but who knows? But I mean, at this point, with its access, you know, to black markets, funds, drugs uh, from, I mean, the booty that was confiscated from the Second World War, from all of these things, uh, it's taken on a life of its own and it has a tremendous reach and a tremendous uh, ability to control international events at this point. I mean, it is uh, something to definitely keep an eye on as we go forward. Uh, this glorious uh, Weimar Republic phase that the United States, and I suppose in a sense a lot of the world uh, by default is going through right now. So, on that note, I suppose we should wrap up for now. Thank you guys for joining us. And as always, thank you guys for listening. And with that, good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>